الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد after praising Allah and sending peace, blessings and salutations upon the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and upon his family and his companions, I'd like to start by welcoming everyone who came here today and also by congratulating all of you for coming early and getting here right at the start of the course. Because I know what tends to happen is people filter in you know, people filter in late, after an hour, after an hour and a half. But if we want to get the most out of the course, then we're definitely going to have to try to, uh, to maximize our time and get the most out of our time. And I always say to, to people in my lectures that time is worth so much more than any other commodity that you have. It's worth a lot more than money. It's worth a lot more than the possessions that you have. Because money you can lose and get back again. But time, you can't get it back. That five minutes that goes, it will never, ever, ever come back to you no matter what you do, no matter what dua you make, no matter what thing you try to do, that five minutes will never, ever come back to you. It's gone and it won't come back. So we want to maximize our time today, we want to get the most out of our day that we possibly can, inshallah ta'ala. We want to get the most out of this course. And with regard to this course, uh, after I give you a sort of an introduction, I want you guys to realize that when we do a course like this, there's one thing I want to do and one thing that I don't want to do. What I want to do or well, let me start with what I don't want to do. I don't want to repeat the same thing that I have on all of my YouTube videos and I've done in Dubai once before and I've done so many times in lots of different countries. I think at the end of the day, it's not worth giving up a day to hear me say the same thing that probably 95% of you have heard me say on YouTube before. So I don't want to do that. What I do want to do is to make today about you guys. Because what's the difference between coming to a course and between watching a video on YouTube? What's the benefit in you sitting here in front of me today or me sitting here in front of you today What's the benefit in that versus watching it at home on YouTube? I would hope the benefit in that is that today becomes about you guys. You guys control the topics and you guys control the questions and you guys get to ask about specifics. And I think this will become clear inshallah ta'ala after the introduction. Because I think that what we need to understand is, before we begin anything, what do we want to achieve out of today? What should you go home knowing? Or what should you go home having achieved? So I think to understand this, I'd like to give you a little bit of history 
as to myself. Now, I'm looking at most of you, and most of you, I know you, uh, I, you've come to many of my lectures, and I've met you many, many times. Some new faces that I've never seen before, but the majority of people, I know you pretty well. But I'd like to give you a background as to where I have been in Rukia and where I have come to in Rukia today, and therefore where I am heading and how that impacts you and what I hoped you will achieve out of today, insha'Allah ta'ala. And I think this is an essential use of our time. I think it's absolutely essential that we start by taking stock. Because I could start by, okay, point number one is this. But I don't want to do that. Because I feel that if we start with point number one is this, then maybe some people who are new to the courses or are new to my lectures might get a little bit lost off might get a little bit confused and might not get the most out of the day. But also I think that we all need to decide what we want out of today. Because, you know, like a lot of people, a lot of people come and, not a lot of, I mean, some people come and what they want is entertainment. You know, they want to pay their course fee and sit down and just be entertained. And just, you know, like, hear some wonderful story about something that will never ever happen to them and they'll never ever have to involve themselves in it and go home and sleep really soundly tonight. And that's not what I want you guys to achieve. This is Dawratun uh, Ilmiyyah. It's a, a conference or a course that is knowledge-based. It's not entertainment-based. And I always say this to people, you know, that this topic is an interesting topic. And I, I, don't, I don't begrudge you that, you know, it's an interesting topic. It's, it's, it's interesting, a lot of people want to know about it, but at the same time, it's not entertainment. It's not here just to make you guys feel really excited and then go to say, guess what he said, you know, the Ustad said that this happened or this happened and how amazing is that? That's never going to happen to me. But for us to sort of become more practical than that and benefit more than that out of the course. At the same time, I'm not going to aim for it to be boring. I'm going to aim for it to be interesting, inshallah. But I'm not going to aim for it to be entertaining. I'm going to aim for it to be informative rather than entertaining. So, where have I come from? Where am I now? Where am I going when it comes to Rukia? So, I'm sure some of you will have heard me talk about how I started in Rukia, but I'll recap for everybody so that you all know how I started in this field. So I went to the Islamic University of Medina, and some of you might be surprised that they don't teach Ruqya in the Islamic University of Medina. You, you don't get a course in any of the different departments, which is the Ruqya course, where you go to learn how to perform Ruqya, or you have some classes on Ruqya, or some lectures on Ruqya. I don't remember there ever being a topic on the Jinn or on Ruqya in Medina in the seven years that I was there, inside of the university or outside of the university. I don't remember there being a single topic ever. And I might have missed one, but I don't personally remember there being a single topic on anything related to this. Of course, you kind of touch upon it in maybe Aqidah talking about the existence of the jinn uh, and that we, you know, we don't worship the jinn or something like that, but not, it's not a focus of the university. But when I went there one summer, I came back to the UK and I met up with a very, very close friend of mine uh, and he told me 
Uh, and I, again, it's hard to recall the details exactly, but I'll tell you as best as I remember, he told me that his sister had become very, very sick. And I think at this point he suspected that her sickness was not a natural sickness. It wasn't a sickness that was a medical sickness, and it wasn't a sickness that was a, what you would say is a natural sickness. It was something that he felt was out of the ordinary. She had got married, and immediately after getting married, she'd become very, very, very unwell very quickly, to the point that she was no longer able to live her married life. She was no longer able to sort of have any sort of good quality of life. She deteriorated very rapidly. She went from doctor to doctor, and the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong, wrong with her. They came up with some ideas of what was wrong with her, and they tried some tests, and every time they were changing their mind, they were sending her from department to department, and she was getting worse and worse and worse. And as I remember, the brother said to me about this, that he suspected that it might not be natural, that it might be something to do with magic or the jinn. And did I know anything about it? And at this point, I had read a couple of books. I might have listened to uh, a couple of lectures uh, in English at that point, because you know it's an interesting topic, and when it comes along, we all listen to it. So I think I listened to it in that way. I had read maybe a book or two. I had you know, maybe read those standard books you get in, you know, in, in English, you get Ibn Taymiyyah's essay on the jinn and, you know, Bilal Phillips, the, you know, the, uh, on uh, the, the exorcist tradition and, you know, these various different, you know, kind of books that every bookstore has. I'd probably read a couple of them, but I didn't really know anything about it. And as I recall, I think I went back to Medina and basically I went back with a bit of a mission to find out more on this topic. And I approached this topic with a very dear friend of mine, uh, our Sheikh Abdul Basit Fahim, who has come here and given lectures to you, I believe, in the Urdu language. And he's a very, very close friend of mine. He's a very knowledgeable brother uh, and someone who I used to consider to be and still do consider to be a mentor for me. Somebody that I go to when I don't know what to do, or I don't know what to read. He was the first person to buy books for me, to choose for me which books to buy, and you know, to choose for me which halakat, which lessons to sit in. So he's very much like a mentor figure. And I sat down with him and I said to him, this is the problem, and what do you advise me? And he said, oh, I can't remember if I asked his advice or he told me while we were sitting that his sheikh, Sheikh Ali ibn Ghazi at Tawajiri, Hafidahullah Ta'ala, his Sheikh, who was doing his master's degree at that time, i.e., the Sheikh was his supervisor for his master's degree, had just written a book on Rukia. And that the Sheikh was very knowledgeable in Rukia. And uh, I think at that point he mentioned it to me first that he said to me, oh, I'm doing my master's now, and my sheikh is, you know, he has an expertise in Rukia, he's just written this book, uh, which is called Al-Istishfa' Bil-Qur'an Al-Kareem, Seeking a Cure from the Noble Qur'an. And, uh, you know, you should go and see him. And I said, you know, I've got this case that I've been presented in the UK, and I don't really know what to do about it. I'd love to go and see the sheikh about this. 
And, you know, I think at some point I ended up having to fix the Sheikh's laptop or something. Something happened in any case that brought us together. And I ended up sitting with Sheikh Ali Hafizahullah and asking the Sheikh to advise me what should be done. Should I recite on this sister or not? Uh, should I, um, you know, should I learn Ruqya? What needs to be done and how? And, uh, you know, I've summarized a lot of times what the Sheikh said to me. It stuck very, very strongly in my mind that the Sheikh said something along the lines of, uh, first of all, he warned me about having correct belief and about the fact that if you're going to do Ruqya, you've got to have the right belief. You've got to have the right approach towards Allah and towards the Quran and your belief in the Quran, your belief in Allah has to be uh, right. And, I'm, and I don't say strong, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَا تُزَكُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ Don't praise yourself. You know, I don't say that you have to have strong iman, but you have to have the right foundation, the right principles, that you believe in Allah as Allah commanded you to do so, you believe as the Prophet ﷺ said, you don't have any major errors in aqidah, you don't seek help from the dead, or you don't, you don't have any major bid'ah that you are openly doing, that you, don't, you, know, that you know that is wrong. And, I mean, you basically have the basics, the foundations there. And he said to me, the second thing that you need, apart from being able to recite the Qur'an in a, you know, a reasonable way, and again, I don't, you, know, you don't have to be sort of, uh, you know, uh, like uh, Ali al-Hudayfi or something like that. You know, you don't have to be an amazing reciter of the Qur'an. But you need to be able to recite the Qur'an competently. Any without making any major errors, without pronouncing the dad as a va, or without pronouncing the, you know, the seen as a sheen, or without pronouncing the sad as a seen. You have to be able to, you know, competently recite the Qur'an. And then he said to me one thing that stuck in my mind. He said to me, if you feel that you can be patient when everything around you is going, you know, I don't know what the word is, it's going, it's falling apart or, you know, everything around you is, is something um, that you can't imagine, you know, it's uh, amazing or it's crazy. If you can be patient during that and you see in yourself that you have the characteristic to be patient when everything is falling apart around you, then you should go and read on this sister. But I warn you from certain things. And one of the things he warned me about is the issue of reciting on a sister, uh, the issue of not looking at her, not touching her, and other things that he said that there are a lot of people who do ruqya and they make a lot of mistakes when it comes to non-mahram women. So sometimes their eyes you know, follow and sometimes their hands follow their eyes and so on and so forth. And he said there's no need for this and it's not in accordance with the sunnah. And he warned me against certain kinds of mistakes and errors. And then he said to me, take my book and read my book and you will find in there everything that you need, inshallah, and phone me if you have any problems. So I took his book and I didn't read it all the way through. I read some basic parts and I went over some other Rukia tapes and I, I went to the UK and I started, I started doing Rukia uh, and I started doing Rukia for this one family and I must have phoned the Sheikh every night probably without fail 
you know, night after night after night, Sheikh, this happened, Sheikh, this happened, Sheikh, this happened. And after a while, I realized that his answer was always the same. His answer was always, remain patient, keep on doing what you're doing, don't lose your focus, don't let the shaitan panic you, look at yourself, come close to Allah, repent, recite, don't worry about it, just keep on going. And, you know, I probably find myself saying that all the time to people now, but that really was my beginning in, in Rukia. And, you know, that, uh, in some ways that case really troubles me because it didn't really, it didn't really get resolved. You know, it didn't really, I, it didn't really come to a, the conclusion that I was hoping it would. But it began my interest in the topic and it began me looking into to Rukia in more detail and sort of having more knowledge about it and starting to sort of seek out scholars or people of knowledge in this field and start to build my knowledge in this. And always the person I was closest to is Sheikh Ali, Hafidahullah, because I found that Sheikh Ali's approach was so different to the approach that I had seen from so many people. He is so strict on the Sunnah. You know, wallahi, I, I can honestly say as a, as a person doing Rukia, he is one of the strictest people that I've seen in terms of adherence to the Sunnah and not messing around and not doing some weird and wonderful things and not like doing these things where there is some ikhtilaf about it and, and maybe you can, maybe you can't or not doing these doubtful matters and just sticking to the proper Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that was a massive influence on me. He also warned me that a lot of people who do Rukia don't really know what they're doing. And I don't think he said it in those words, but I took it that way and I myself have sort of realized since then that the majority of people who do Rukia don't know what they're doing. And that's not an exaggeration. Like the majority of people who claim some area of expertise in this field and often they claim a crazy area of expertise. I have this ilm that nobody else has except me. And I can teach you the, you know, the secrets of this topic. And I can teach you the hidden gems. And in, the re in reality, what you see is just a whole load of bid'ah. A whole load of innovation. And some misconceptions. And bad aqidah. And a lack of knowledge. And a lack of following the sunnah. And then they say, my way is better than the way of the messenger of Allah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And one of the first things that Sheikh Ali drew, you know, sort of drove into my mind is that the best way to do Ruqya is the way the Prophet ﷺ and his companions عنهم, did Ruqya. This is the way you do Ruqya. As for Ruqya with all of these, you know, like these uloom and this study of this and that and the other and these, you know, weird and wonderful herbs and medicines and whatever, any, some of it is of a benefit. But a lot of it is just taking you away from the sunnah of the Prophet And I know not all of the brothers agree with me on this. You know, not all of the brothers who do Rukia agree with me on this. And I'm sure I'll, people will see the video and give me some, you know, hard time for this. For saying this, they will say, no, you know, many of our scholars approved of these ways and these means and these secret passages and whatever. But I'm fairly convinced in what I say. Not only because it matches the principles of the sunnah is always best, but more than that, sort of 10 years plus of practical experience has shown me 
that the people who do it according to the sunnah are consistently and regularly more successful and they get the job done in a shorter amount of time than those people who use all of these weird and wonderful ways and classifications and knowledge and you know these weird books and ideas and herbs and medicines and whatever the people who just do it according to the sunnah just get the job done quicker and this is my experience over many, many, many people doing Ruqya over, you know, more than 10 years of, of learning and teaching Ruqya that the Sunnah is just better in every single way. And that doesn't mean these little side forms of knowledge are not beneficial. You can take a benefit from certain herbs, certain uh, herbal medicines we're going to talk about today, certain sort of supporting actions, certain types of knowledge, classification of the jinn. I'm not saying that's irrelevant but it literally represents 1%, 2% of the knowledge of Ruqya. 98, 99% is knowing the Sunnah and implementing the Sunnah. And that's something that I took from our Shaykh Shir Ali At-Tuwajiri, Hafidhullah Ta'ala. So I started doing Ruqya, I started reading about Ruqya, and my next step along the line, and I want to talk you through the videos as well, because I want you to kind of understand all of these videos of Muhammad Tim on magic are just like all in one big lump. There's no chronology. You don't know which one came first and which one came second. So probably the first time was uh, there was a masjid in, in Birmingham in the United Kingdom, uh, and this masjid, Green Lane Masjid, they invited me and they said to me, we'd like you to do a talk on the jinn or a talk on Rukia. Actually before that I think I did one in Newcastle uh, and it was quite a low-key thing and then after that I did one on the jinn and Rukia uh, probably because there was a student in that masjid who studied with me in Medina and he knew that I was kind of interested in the topic so he asked me to talk about uh, just the jinn I think just the world of the jinn so I did a talk on the world of the jinn it was very simplistic it was very very simple now maybe some areas I think that I don't always agree with now that I watch it again I keep meaning to make an edited version like a you know director's cut or something where I basically you know edit the video but this was one of my first videos that I did certainly it was one of my first videos on YouTube on the topic of magic uh, and the jinn and what happened was they had scheduled another speaker to come the next week and talk about magic and that speaker couldn't come so they phoned me and said would you be interested in coming and talking about magic you know following on from what you talked about about the jinn and would you particularly be interested in you know speaking a little bit about uh, this uh, Alistair Crowley and this uh, Abra Hadabra or Abra Kadabra this statement of shirk that he used to make uh, that he used to say, and it's Hebrew, but it actually is very near to Arabic. Abra in Hebrew is the same as Abra'u in Arabic. I create. Hadabra as I wish. Yani, ma asha. This is the, the meaning of abracadabra, something like the equivalent of saying in Arabic, ma asha. I create whatever I want. And this is, of course, a statement of shirk, and a statement which takes a person outside of Islam, competing with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-khaliq, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator. And so you see, anyways, I, I started studying some of these magicians, and that got me interested more in how people do magic. Because I had kind of touched on that in some of the books, but this really got me interested in that. And then I went on, and I guess the next stage 
was the Rukia workshop that I did with Abu Ibrahim. And in this time, I was doing a lot of Rukia. You know, I was doing a lot of Rukia, a lot of like cases. And I was doing Rukia like the standard classical way, meaning that I bring the family in or I go visit the family three times a week or they come visit me three times a week or once a week or twice a week and I read on them and I send them home. And I probably tell them, you know, read Al-Falaq and Al-Nas over yourself, but there was no emphasis on self-ruqiyah. It was very much like, I'm a Raqi, come to me, I read on you, you go home. Come to me again, I read on you, you go home. I come to you, I read on you, I go home. And that was the kind of way that I was doing things. That was how I was taking care of my, of my Ruqiyah. Uh, and at that point, I think I found my Ruqiyah partner, Basak. He's now studying in the Islamic University of Medina. He won't thank me for mentioning his name. But anyways, I'll mention it again. Our, our brother Basak, uh, who is my Ruqiyah partner, in the sense that me and him, we uh, met each other. I think he came to one of my Arabic classes, and he became my Ruqiyah partner. And you know, it's a nice time to talk about what makes a good Raqi or a good Rukia partner. Uh, one thing is you could light a fire under his feet and he wouldn't move. And that is a very, very good characteristic to have in someone that does Rukia. To be very, very patient, to be very, very mentally strong. Physical strength has almost no relation to Rukia at all. I mean, there are, we're going to talk about violent jinn later on, but physical strength is almost worthless. I mean, a little bit of physical strength is good, but it's not, like, it's not of any great benefit. But mental strength is extremely important. If you're a person who, when the lights turn off, you run out of the room, that is not a good situation to start doing Rukia in. You know, you need to be a person who is mentally very sort of unshakable. And again, I say that word in a very generic sense because all of us get scared. I've had times in, in Rukia sessions where I've got scared and my heart start racing. You know, at the end of the day, you're dealing with things you can't see, attacking you from every direction, you know. You would not be an ordinary human being if you didn't get scared from time to time. But the general sort of like reaction should be that this person is solid as a rock and patient. And the other thing that I really benefit from this brother being my Rukia partner is that he is extremely strict on inkar al-munkar, on forbidding the munkar. And oh, wallahi, I say this without, you know, you know, wallahu hasibuhu wa la uzakki Allahi ahada. Allah knows him best and I don't claim anyone is pious in the sight of Allah. I don't claim to have knowledge that Allah doesn't have. But one thing I saw from him is he is better than me at forbidding evil. You know, if a sister would come without hijab, I would kind of say, you know, sister, next time you need to put your hijab, you know, it's not good, you come without hijab. He would say, don't come in through the door, go home, put your hijab, come back. And he, like, he was stricter than me in that sense. And it was really good for me, because if I ever felt like doing anything that wasn't right, he would slap me down straight away. You know, he would literally just say, that's not right, stop it, ittaqullah or ittaqillah, he would say, fear Allah. So that kind of relationship, having this Rukia partner, that's what you want. You want someone you can depend on, so when everything starts flying in the room, they are you know, firmly feet on the ground. You want someone that is going to be sort of helping you to do the right thing.
We always, you know, sometimes like we're going to talk later about touching people in Rukia, and I said, you know, I'm totally against touching women in Rukia, but sometimes it happens. Sometimes, it, you know, like, you know, the, the woman throws you a punch and you decide that, you know, you need to grab hold of her arm because if you don't, you're going to, you know, end up with a black eye. So you do, and then every time that would happen, I would sit with him and I would say to him, did we do the right thing? Was it, you know, did I, did I rush too quickly? Did I, you know, take hold of her arm when I didn't need to? Should I just have moved back? You know, like, and we would review it. And we would develop sort of a procedure or a system whereby we would kind of review something that was, you know, maybe not right. Did I end up, you know, was I not lowering my gaze? Was I not, you know, reading in the right way? Did I get distracted and stop reading Al-Falaq and Al-Nas and start reading Surah Al-Safat or something like that? Did I lose my focus? Did I get angry with the jinn and start, you know, like raising my voice too much and getting too emotional? Did I engage in conversation too much? And we would kind of act as a, a sounding board to each other and say, next time I don't think we should do that. Next time I think we should do this. And also what we would do is take over from one another. So this is something that's really useful for having a rookie partner is when you try and do it on your own, you have to handle all of that recitation an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever, by yourself. And you know, having someone there with you means when your throat gets tired, when you start feeling, you know, they can take over and it's like a relay, you know, you're passing the baton to one another. So this is what I was doing when I started. I met Abu Ibrahim, uh, and uh, Abu Ibrahim had had a lot of experience of Rukia uh, from various places, various shuk and stuff. And we kind of hit it off because of that. You know, we kind of because of the Rukia side of things, like we sort of like became friends. And I ended up doing a Rukia course with Abu Ibrahim. But you have to also remember that this Rukia course with Abu Ibrahim was still one of the earlier Rukia courses that I did. In fact, it was the first full-time, like, proper course that I did on Rukia. I don't remember doing a proper, I remember doing lectures, but I don't remember doing a proper Rukia course before Abu Ibrahim. And that course was amazing because wherever I fell short, he made up for it. Uh, and it was just, it was really, really good. And it's still what I say is my go-to course. It's still the one that I tell everybody to watch. But what you need to understand about that is that that course was still, I had not fully made that transition to self-Rukia. I was still Iraqi, as in a traditional, come to me and I'll read over you type of Raqi. And at the same time, also, we were, you know, we were just still learning, and we're still learning today, but we were still, you know, forming ideas, and we were still sort of, you know, trying to gather everything together, and trying to present it, you know, in two days was very short. Two days is a very short length of time to go over, you know, everything. But it was good, and I still consider that course to be one of my go-to courses that I tell everybody, if you haven't watched it, go back and watch this 10-part Rukia course. It's on my website, on the video page, uh, this 10-part Rukia course, and, you know, I, it, was, it was still an important course. After that, what happened is that course was well-received, alhamdulillah, a lot of people benefited from it and what we did is it kind of made a lot of people ask for other courses uh, so one that I did was in South Africa but one that I did is available on YouTube and it's available on YouTube um, from the West London Islamic Cultural Center 
from the West London Islamic Cultural Center. And it's shorter than the one that I did with Abu Ibrahim. But the difference is that there's some areas in there that I corrected that I haven't corrected, uh, like that I hadn't corrected before. And uh, Basak makes an appearance in it as well. Uh, so Basak turns up because what happened was during the course, somebody had a very severe reaction and we decided for better or for worse that we would do Rukia on the stage. So we brought the brother to the stage. The brother was not attending the course, he was attending the masjid. And we brought him on the stage and we did Rukia for the brother on the stage. Uh, that did not go down very well with the audience because you all think that would be amazing. But like, you know, half of the women were about to faint and, you know, people left. I mean, people left and went home. That was how it went. Like, people left and went home and sent me horrible emails saying, how dare you expose me to this? This was the worst experience and it was horrible. And uh, Brother Basak has an advice that he made for them on the day where he took the mic and basically just said, we're not here to entertain you. Welcome to the real world. This is what Rukia is really like. It's not a 10 second you know, YouTube video where you see something floating and you think, oh, that's really entertaining. You know, it's something where people die and people get suffer from long-term illnesses and people have their whole lives ruined and you have to deal with that. And so it's not, it's not fun and it's not entertaining. It's probably, you know, like, I mean, it, it's, it's just, I, I can't find even another profession that matches it. It's like being a doctor in emergency medicine and a psychologist at the same time. You know, you're dealing with people who are in emergency situations, whose lives have been ruined, who have major, major psychological uh, issues, and I'm not talking about them not coming from the jinn, I mean from the jinn, but the jinn of course within them major psychological issues, major problems, and they are suffering so badly that, you know, on a worst case scenario, they could die. And, you know, people do. And I had an email just the other day from someone saying that, you know, basically blaming me for not treating their, you know, cousin or whatever who died. Um, and subhanAllah, at the end of the day, it's a serious thing. So basically, we did the Rukia session and instead of having this wonderful, elated, you know, reaction from the audience of, wow, we saw a Rukia session and we heard the jinn speak, the basic reaction was just, like this and most people some people were shaking some people i think threw up outside some people left and went home some people sent me nasty emails and still a lot of people stayed but you know like at the end of the day it didn't go down great and uh, i kind of learned my lesson from that and i you know i've learned yeah that i get it in the neck no matter what i do right if i do it i get in trouble if i don't do it i get in trouble so at kalima last event in the last rukia workshop Somebody had a reaction, and believe it or not, I started getting complaints. Why did Muhammad Tim leave the sister to have the reaction and not go down from the stage and just start doing Rukia in front of everyone? But like I said, you know, I'm in trouble if I do it, and I'm in trouble if I don't. But I've kind of learned my lesson that actually Rukia in front of an audience doesn't really benefit a lot. And the person is not going to get like an instant cure in most cases, and the better thing is to see them after the course, treat them after the course in private, and take that whole situation, and you know, keep that whole situation separate. 
At this point, uh, one of the things that I became really interested in was I became really interested in the ethics of Ruqya. And I've always been interested in the ethics of Ruqya, right from Sheikh Ali, uh, Hafizahullah, uh, which is things like, you know, not videotaping your Ruqya session. Because I see some people, there are some very well-known Raqis, friends of mine, well, you know, acquaintances of mine at least, who, you know, video everything, slap it on YouTube, get loads of followers, hey, it's all amazing. But that's some, you know, would you, I mean, would you go to, would you have a psychologist or a psychiatrist have a patient come in, spill their heart out about all of their fears and worries, video it on YouTube, and then post it to get views? Like, that person would not remain in the profession or in their hospital for very long. I can promise you that. And I think this affected me when I did a talk on medical ethics. I did a talk on medical ethics in Islam. And it just made me think, you know, that at the end of the day, a lot of the, Rukia is very unregulated, as you know. Like, anybody can put a hat on and say, hey, I'm Maraki, you know. Like, it's, it's very, very unregulated, and it's very, very haphazard. But one of the sad things we see is we see good brothers who do good Rukia with bad ethics. So they're good brothers, they do good Rukia in the sense they're upon the Sunnah, but they have bad ethical standards. So they tell everybody about what goes on, they put it on YouTube, they touch people when they shouldn't, they, you know, they just generally you know, don't behave in the patient's best interest. They behave in the best interest of themselves and promoting themselves and what have you. And that's very sad. So I started to get into that. I started to write about it, to talk about it. And I put some things on the blog post on various topics. And at this point, uh, I got a chance to meet uh, my kind of second big influence in terms of a sheikh for Ruqya. And that was our Sheikh Adil bin Tahir al-Muqbil, Hafizahullah ta'ala. Sheikh Adil is just a law unto himself. You know, like he is just... You know, Sheikh Adil, how do I describe Sheikh Adil? I don't think I can describe him. You know, you just have to watch him. You know, he's, he's just, you know, I, 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 can't, I, just, I can't bring words to describe him. You know, he has worked most of his life in the Hayat al-Amr bil-Ma'roof wa nahi al-Munkar, the committee of the, the uh, promotion of virtue and the prevention of vice in Saudi Arabia, with the specialization of catching and bringing magicians to justice. That is just my ideal job, you know, that is just so amazing. You know, this guy basically gets to, you know, this sheikh, Hafizahullah, he drives around all day catching magicians and bringing them to justice. He's not a Raqi. Uh, he doesn't do Rukia for people as such. Uh, but what he does do is he gives a lot of advice. He is absolutely one of the strictest people I've ever seen in explaining the role of Tawheed in successful Rukia. The role of Aqidah in successful Rukia. You know, when you ask him about Rukia, he's just going to give you Kitab al-Tawheed. Honestly, if you ask him about Rukia, he will literally just sit with Kitab al-Tawheed and take you through one, two, three, four. This is what you should believe about Allah. And you'll say to him at the end, Sheikh, but I asked you about Rukia. And he will say, this is Rukia. And this is what you need. Your belief in Allah, your belief in the oneness of Allah, your Tawheed, your worshipping Allah alone, your being far away from shirk, this is what you need. This is the reason people are not successful in Ruqya. And that amazed me, but just the depth of his knowledge on the topic of magic is just unbelievable. You know, this person, I have, I mean, I think, and I've seen him personally, 
speak to a magician um, or someone who practices magic and educate the magician. You know, the magician is left going, I didn't know that. You know, like, and he, he, this guy has such a breadth, a depth of knowledge about magic. He is literally a bahar, like they say in Arabic. He's a sea of knowledge when it comes to magic and how magic works and the reality of it and the reality of the magician. And I was blessed to be able to attend his course, his two-day course in, in, in London. And I became very close to the Sheikh. He became, uh, you know, someone I was very close to. And I, until this day, you know, I, I message him and he gives me advice about Rukia, about magic, about magicians. But one of the things that really, or two or three things that really changed me as a person when I met him, one was the emphasis on belief. Because literally, if he teaches you Rukia, nine hours of it will be Aqidah and one hour of it will be Rukia. And that is the right way of doing things. And that's the way the Prophet ﷺ did things. Ten years in Makkah teaching people La ilaha illallah, then the Salah, then the Ahkam of Islam. That is, that is how the Prophet ﷺ did things and that is how we do things. All of our time we spend Aqeedah, 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 Tawheed, 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 Sunnah, get your prayer right. And trust me, the bit you need to learn about Rukia is like this. It's nothing, it's tiny. Compared to correcting your belief, getting on the sunnah, getting your prayers right and your, you know, your major obligations right and avoiding your major sins. I think if a person gets to there, well, if they only read, Qul bi rabbil falaq, they would find a cure in it, inshallah. Wallahi, yani, I, this is not me saying this any out of you know like just as a statement to get you all like wow you know like this is what i really believe you correct your aqidah you correct your adherence to the sunnah you correct your prayer you correct your obligations and avoid your major sins and wallahi you read qul a'udhu bi rabbil falaq you will find it kafi and shafi and you will find it enough for you in every regard because the reality is this is the methodology of the prophet Aqeedah awwalan, al-aqeedah to awwalan, aqeedah comes first, belief comes first, attaching your heart to Allah comes first, turning to Allah comes first, the salah comes after that, and then the obligations and avoiding the prohibitions, the most important, like they say, al-aham fal-muhim, wa al-aham fal-aham. The important one, and then the next important one, and then the next important one, and then the next important one. And then, Rukia, you'll find, will become a lot, lot more successful and a lot more powerful and a lot more, uh, a lot easier than it was before. So that's one thing that I benefited massively from the Sheikh. The second thing that I benefited massively from the Sheikh and really changed me is the Sheikh's emphasis on self-Rukia. Uh, and his emphasis on you getting the patient to turn to Allah first of all. And this was kind of the beginning. And, and at the beginning, I kind of thought, that's excellent. I can read on people and tell them to read at home and then read on them and tell them to read at home. And as I've tested that over the years, and it's, I've tested it over several years now, I've kind of realized that the reading they do at home is even better than the reading that I'm doing for them. And that in reality, the reading that I'm doing for them is not as good as the reading they're doing for themselves at home. And there's a lot of reasons we're going to talk about today, inshallah, regarding that. One of them is your 
instantly from an Iman perspective, you're much closer to Allah when it's only you and Allah. Right? We all know the hadith of the 70,000 who will enter Jannah and the statement of the Prophet they are the ones who do not seek Ruqya. And as we've said before, seeking Ruqya may be wajib, may be fard upon you. If you can't pray, if you can't fulfill your obligations, if you can't be a Muslim without, without going to Iraqi for Ruqya, then it is fardu ayn upon you to go for, for, to Iraqi for Ruqya. But if you are able to handle it yourself, handle it yourself. If you're able to, to put the only thing, you know, the, the only, this relationship is directly between you and Allah, the benefit of Iman and the success that Iman brings to your Ruqya will be so many times multiplied that you'll actually find that it's more efficient and it's better for you than you going to a person to do Ruqya for you regardless of the knowledge they have. And I still believe we should have people who do Ruqya. I, I'm not against that. But I just started to turn the balance or to weigh my balance onto self-Ruqya. And another thing that made me do that is more and more people were finding out about me. More and more people were learning about me from YouTube videos and whatever. And so the number of people who were contacting me became more than I could ever hope to do. You know, if I cloned myself 10 times, I could not handle the number of people who came to me asking me for Rukia and help. And so you start to realize that, hey, we're dealing with an epidemic here or a pandemic. We're dealing with an illness that has spread all over the world to hundreds and thousands and perhaps even millions of people. You can't have one Muhammad Tim treating 10 million people. You can't have 100 Muhammad Tims treating 10 million people. You can't have a million Muhammad Tims treating 10 million people. You roughly need, roughly maybe you can handle, I don't know, five patients at a time, something like that. So the reality is, it isn't possible to rely upon a group of people of 20 or 50 or 100 or whatever. You just can't rely upon them to do the ruqya that's needed. What we need them to do is like we've said, and I mentioned this in the Kalima lesson, uh, which I'll come to, is this concept of a hospital. In a hospital, you have patients, you have pharmacists, you have nurses, you have junior doctors and trainees, uh, and you have from the trainee, the junior doctor, from the junior doctor to the more senior doctor, to the senior, co to the consultant, to the specialist, and, the, you know, the, you know, and you have like a pyramid diagram. The same thing we need in Rukia. If everyone went to the hospital every time we had, they had a headache, what would happen? The hospital would be overwhelmed. So what do we do? We teach people to do Rukia on themselves and self-treat. Those people who are really successful at self-treating, they become like sort of the pharmacist, right? You know, like your next port of call. I'm a little bit ill, but I'm not ill enough to go to the doctor. Let me go to the pharmacist and say, you know, I do have a little bit of this pain. What should I do? And they say, well, just take this medicine. I don't need to see you. I don't need to look at you or anything. Just take this medicine. Then you get up to the next level and you have people who are kind of like junior doctors and they sort of, you know, see a few people and around them and they're giving some rukia and some help, but it's not like really specialized until you get to the very top of the tree and you have, you know, some of the most knowledgeable people in the world in rukia, like the shiuch who I 
you know, learn from and I go to when I get stuck, those are the people who are at the very top of the tree. They don't need to be doing ruqya on people day to day. They need to be helping the people who couldn't self-treat, who couldn't go to the pharmacy, who couldn't go to the junior doctor or the GP, who needed someone more senior, and then later on maybe even they go to someone more senior than them and more knowledgeable than them on a very specific case that we couldn't, you know, we couldn't crack. So this kind of model works, it works around the world, it works in healthcare around the world, that you don't have everyone who has a headache go to the consultant of neurology and have him look at, you know, their give them a, you know, like a, a one of these uh, CT scans and analyze their brain patterns, you know, you just go and take a paracetamol. And that's the system that we need to have for Rukia. We need to have self-Rukia, people who are good at self-Rukia, you know, like occasional Rukia, detailed Rukia, all of these within self-Rukia, then, you know, email advice, uh, personal advice, the occasional meeting, the odd consultation, and then right at the top of the tree, these people who are world-renowned experts who are giving us very specific and very, very detailed advice with regard to Rukia and with regard to specific issues within the field of Rukia. So this is what I started to realize that at the moment, in Rukia, in most places in the world, we are operating the principle that if you have a headache, you need to go and see a neurologist and have a CT scan. That is how we are basically operating Rukia in the world today. Everyone who has a twitch in their ear gets to see the most knowledgeable Raki in the country and they do Rukia on them. And it's absolutely unsustainable. It cannot work. It, it just cannot work. It works better in some places than others. Uh, some people have, it, have done a better system, they have some trainees, they have some students, but ultimately it cannot work. So at this point, I started to change my view on Rukia and become a lot more focused on teaching people and a lot more focused on helping people to help themselves with the help of Allah. And that's kind of my mission really, you know, helping people to help themselves with the help of Allah. And I still see people from time to time, and uh, I'm quite happy to do Rukia on people, but I would like to do Rukia on people who have done the following. Number one, they have learned Rukia for themselves. This is step number one. They've watched the videos, they've been through the website. My number one pet hate, and it is a hate, is somebody saying, Brother, I'm sick, can you do Rukia for me? First of all, you need to learn Rukia, learn what it is, learn what you can do. If you've never tried to read on yourself, why go to somebody? What kind of, you know, you're lowering your Iman, you're, you're breaking your relationship with Allah, and you're just making difficulty for other people who are more serious. And my other pet hate, and it's even worse than the first one, are people who think their case is the most urgent. I can promise you anybody who emails me with the word urgent gets their email put to the back of the list. Because it's just horrible manners and it's absolute selfishness to believe that your case is worse than someone who, and, I, and I'm, I'll be honest, I get cases like the doctor has told me I've got a week left to live. And then someone says, my case is really urgent, my leg doesn't stop twitching. And you want to say, you know, sometimes you get angry and you want to say, may Allah cut off your leg. Yani how dare you presume that your case is more serious than those people? 
And you don't like have such bad manners. And like one per people email me and get angry with me. I emailed you, you didn't respond in three days. Don't you care? That's the kind of emails that I get. You know, don't you care? You know, you killed my cousin. Like, I'm serious. You know, like, I mean, apart from the jinn, the jinn are constantly one. I'm, I once came across a brother in the masjid. He fainted in the masjid and he said, you killed my cousin. The jinn said to me, you killed my cousin. And that's a different story. But, you know, I get people emailing me, so you killed my cousin. And I'm like, I don't remember doing that, Habibi. <laughs> you want to explain to me? And he's like, well, I emailed you and I told you that it was serious and I told you it was urgent and you didn't respond within three days and he died. I say, but what do you want me to do? If it's an emergency, call 911. And he, like, I'm not, a, I'm not an emergency ambulance. I don't have blue flashing lights on my car that when you email me, yani, put the blue lights on, off I go. To the end of, you know, I'll go to the end of the world, jump on the plane, private jet, straight there, you know, land there, fisa turn up at your doorstep, do emergency rukia. That's not realistic. That email comes from someone who has not connected with Allah, who does not believe that Allah is your emergency, you know, number that you call when you're in, de in desperate need, is you call upon Allah. You call upon Allah, or if it's a real desperate need, you call upon the people around you who you can, you know, physically reach and touch. But to send an email to someone halfway around the world and say that, you know, you really should have done this for me, I mean, it's really selfish. It's just not good manners. So I'm really strict on this. But, you know, my sort of perspective is number one, learn. You know, develop your knowledge. Because what's the point in me emailing you the same thing I said in my video? What's the point in me today saying to you guys the same thing that you can watch on YouTube? So why come and sit here, you know, like come and sit because it's something, it, it's different to what you're going to see on, on YouTube, you know. So that's the first thing, learn. The second thing is try the basic treatments mentioned. You know, I have my seven day treatment. I mentioned it in the Kelima workshop. I have a basic Rukia program. Give it a go yourself. And, and you know, I love it when people email and say, I've watched your videos. I've tried this treatment and this has happened. I don't like it when they say, I've watched your videos, tried the treatment, help me. Because that's not specific enough. I like it when they say, I've watched your videos, I've tried the treatment, I improved, but I have XYZ problem that's not going away. That for me is massively worthwhile. It's worthwhile a blog post because probably that's a deficiency in my treatment and it's maybe even a something that other people need to know about. So I'll even, you know, I'll spend an afternoon, I'll spend four hours to write a blog post on that topic because I see that person is genuinely trying and they've tried and they are asking me a specific question about a specific problem and not just this, will you help me? And will you help me is likely to get a reply of, please visit the website. You know, and that's the purpose. The end of the day, you can't say the same thing to that many people. You have to kind of make it a broad thing. So I'm still continuing on my history of Rukia. I really want to understand where I came from and why we're here today. So the next thing was the Kelima. Uh, and I mean, I did a few in between. I went to South Africa. I did one. But the Kelima... Um, the Kelima uh, first Rukia workshop, of which this is workshop number two. And this is the first time that I really pushed self-Rukia. And I entitled it Successful Self-Rukia. So I think that if you're watching the videos in order, definitely watch uh, the Abu Ibrahim set, try and watch the West London Islamic Center set, and then watch Successful Self-Rukia uh, and Overcoming Problems in Rukia, which is what we did last time. 
And that was all about encouraging people to do Rukia on themselves. And I talked them through the treatment. Because I understand it's not nice to give someone a blog post article. Maybe they don't understand. There's some confusion. So I talked you through the treatment. I literally made a video. And I think it was live uploaded to YouTube. And I think there's a better version that's going to come out, inshallah, that's on DVD or whatever. But this version on YouTube is a bit broken. But I mean, it's, it's there. It was there from the first day of me talking you through how to do the treatment. This is what you do first. This is what you do second. This is what you do third. This is some of the reasons why treatment doesn't work. You know, and I, I always tell people this, the role of sin in stopping your treatment. Sin is the major reason. I mean, you know the famous statement. The famous, famous statement. Everybody's heard it. مَا نَزَلَتْ مُصِيبَةٌ إِلَّا بِذَنْبٍ وَمَا رُفِعَتْ إِلَّا بِتَوْبَةٍ no musiba, no calamity ever befell anyone except because of sin, and it was never raised from anyone except because of tawbah. And I also talked about how do you know your treatment is complete, how do you know when the jinn is gone, how do you deal with these things, and, and all of that stuff. So that was really for me, you know, um, that for me was sort of me trying to explain to people why I'm telling people to do self-rukia and why I think self-rukia is the best. And it's not to free my time up. Really, genuinely, I believe that self-rukia is A, the only viable solution to the problem of magic in the world today is to have, you know, a hundred million Muslims doing self-rukia. That's the only viable solution to magic. And that's the only way that I see that we can get this problem under control along with correcting obviously the people's belief uh, and then you know in terms of that like talking about you know how people uh, you know the other reason why I think self-rukia is so important not just that I think it's the only option but in my and I keep saying 10 years and it's been more than 10 years now I keep forgetting I don't 2006 maybe yeah, yeah maybe 10 years let's say 10 years 10 years of doing rukia I've honestly found that the people who do self-rukia consistently and regularly across a wide spectrum of problems and cases get better more quickly and they have a longer lasting recovery, less complications and overall they just have a better experience from their rukia. So as I said, I think you see it as a pyramid. We start people off with simple self-rukia. Hey, I've got a headache. I don't know if I have a problem. Should I consider myself to have a problem? You know, simple seven-day treatment that I talked you through last time. You know, just a simple, you know, olive oil and water and whatever. Am I, you know, do I have a problem or not? Okay, what's the next step? I have a problem and I don't know what to do about it. I have a problem in, you know, I have a problem. Okay, move up to the full Rukia program. It's on the website, it's on the homepage. Muhammad Tim's full Rukia program, move up to that. And you know, subhanAllah, one of the things I also wanted to share with you at this point is, I, I'm always very suspicious of people who tell me that they do my full Rukia program. And I'll tell you why. I've tried doing my full Rukia program and I could not do it for more than three days. Myself, I'll be honest with you. I could not keep up that program for more than three days in a row. So I'm always very suspicious with people who send me an email that I've done your Rukia program for three months without fail and uh, you know, I haven't got any better. I'm not saying they're lying. Of course, I, you know, we have Hassan Adhan, we think good of you. But I think that you should look at yourself and ask yourself, did I really stick to the program? 
Because, wallahi, I can't stick to it for more than three days. I've never beat three days in a row of doing what I recommend on my website. Because, you know, it's an awful lot of time. 45 minutes of Rukia a day, plus a third of Surah Al-Baqarah, plus the water and the olive oil and the showering and the, you know, the black seed, plus, plus, hijama, plus, 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 plus. I've never managed to do it for more than three days in a row. And that's why I think that a lot of people are still looking for an easy answer. People are not doing the program. They're not doing what they've been told. They're looking for a quick and easy answer. I've done your program. It didn't work. Give me something quicker. And the reality is most people haven't done it. Now, I'm not saying everybody. I know some of my patients who do it strictly. And I know they do it strictly. I see them doing it day after day after day. And I know these people are like, MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. You know, if you can give one and a half hours to Rukia a day, every day, week after week, that shaitan must be getting absolutely tortured. Because, you know, it's amazing. And you know, some people have another problem. Is that they're doing the time, but they're not doing it with their heart. Remember this tip, it will help you a whole lot. Dhikr is with the tongue and the heart and the limbs. Dhikr, this is an absolute fundamental principle in Ruqya. Dhikr is with the tongue and the heart and the limbs. Too many people who do Ruqya, do Ruqya with the tongue. The heart is empty. People who do Ruqya as, as a profession and people who do Ruqya on themselves. So you see them like this. They say, I finished Surah Al-Baqarah in half an hour. I'm like, I can't finish Surah Al-Baqarah in two hours and I don't read very slowly. You know, like, I, I, even if you take someone, you know, a regular reciter of the Quran, I don't think you'll find any reciter of the Quran on a tape finishing Surah Al-Baqarah in less than, let's say, an hour and a half or an hour and 20 minutes, something like that. I don't think you'll find it. And you know, subhanAllah, if you're reading the Qur'an with that, that attention and that focus and that, you know, turning to Allah and your heart is literally stopping at every ayah and thinking and believing and reflecting, your ruqya is going to become many, many times more effective than it is if your tongue is just moving. The shaitan get hurt if your tongue is just moving. The shaitan get burned. But when they really get tortured is when your heart is engaged. You know, when you read, If you get chance, um, and maybe I'll try and translate it. It has been translated before. Listen to what Ibn al-Qayyim said about, Ibn al-Qayyim said that he treat himself from pretty much every illness that he had ever experienced in this length of time in Makkah, only with, Nothing else or with Surah Al-Fatiha, focusing his attention and his energy and his thoughts upon And that's enough, wallahi, it is enough as a ruqya. It's enough, wallahi, enough. Subhanallah, what a, you know, what does this ayah contain from tawheed and turning to Allah and relying upon Allah and showing your poverty in front of Allah. It's just, you know, you can't describe how much this ayah contains of benefit, but so many of us just skip over it. It's just in robot mode. You know, even if we're reciting the Quran slowly, the heart is not there. The heart needs to be there. And, you know, sometimes I'll even change the surah I read because I want my heart to attach. I'm not attaching to that surah. I'm just like reading it and I'll swap and I'll just change.
and I'll read something like Surat Al-Anbiya because I just want my mind to focus back on the Quran. And you know, it can be repetitive. You know, you're reading the same thing over and over again. Sometimes you just switch to a different surah from time to time just to get your heart. Sometimes I read in a different qira'ah. I read in Warsh or I, you know, I read in Khalaf and Hamza. Not that I'm very good at it, but you know, I, I just to get myself to change and my heart to just attach again. And then the third thing, uh, you know, after, you know, in terms of the, the tongue and the heart is the limbs. And this is where a lot of people also go wrong in Rukia. Their heart is really feeling it, their tongue is really feeling it, they're pronouncing it, they're saying it slowly, the heart is engaged, but then they go out and they do the opposite of what they just read. And their limbs are not, are not giving truth. Their limbs are not giving truth to what they read. They read, you know, for example, something about a sin or something about avoiding or Ya ayyuhannasu taqu rabbakum And then they go out and they leave their taqwa at the door And at the end of the day that ruqya is not going to have the same effect It can't have the same effect Because when dhikr, you know when you talk about flow and being like in the flow of things You know dhikr, you're in the flow of dhikr when your tongue and your heart and your limbs are all together working on the same thing your limbs are giving truth to it, your tongue is giving truth to it, your heart is attached to it. That is when your ruqya makes a difference. That is when your ruqya starts to have a massive impact. And I see that in myself. Sometimes when I'm a bit distracted, I see that my ruqya is less effective than when I'm really concentrating. Even in one person, you'll see it. And I know that if you have an affliction, the shaitan will distract you and take your heart away, but it's all in the effort. And that's another point that I want to make to you guys, and I want to you know, sort of drill home or hammer home to you guys, is that it's all in the effort. It doesn't matter that the shaitan takes your mind away and you start, what was I reading? Doesn't matter. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم no problem. It's the effort of going back and back and pushing yourself. That's what hurts the shaitan. So that is, you know, that is kind of what I was talking about in my first, in my uh, self-Rukia course. And then, you know, sort of, what am I doing at Kalima with Rukia right now? Um, I don't do Rukia in Dubai with Kalima because I have so many other things to do, da'wah and work with new Muslims and non-Muslims and lectures. But I kind of try to advise people by email and I try to sometimes, you know, meet people on the way in, on the way out, and give people a little bit of, you know, general advice as to their case, inshaAllah ta'ala. So this brings us to this next point. Where do we go from here? Why are we here today? That's where we've been. That's kind of a, like, super fast recap of what we've done. And if you missed any of that because you haven't watched the videos, you can go back tonight or tomorrow or the next day or whatever, and you can watch those videos all the way through, inshallah, and you know, you'll, get, you'll get up to where we are now. If you watch Abu Ibrahim video plus the West London Islamic Center one, if you like, optionally, plus the, uh, the Kalima uh, workshop, Successful Self Rukia and Overcoming Problems in Rukia, and then you end up sort of 
Uh, there's one more video that I want you to watch as well. The Quran is a cure. I, I summarized uh, Sheikh Ali's book, Al-Istishfab Al-Quran Al-Kareem, in, in a video called The Quran is a Cure, and it's also on my website, muhammadtim.com forward slash video. Uh, it's on there as well. It's called The Quran is a Cure. That's also very important as well. That's generically talking about how you actually go through the process of Ruqya. How do you read, and what do you read, and when, and how, and stuff like that. So that takes us up to here. What I want to do today is I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I don't want someone to go out and say, well, you know, that's the same thing I've heard him say before. What I want to do today is basically, if I look at it, is basically three or four things. The first thing I've done, and that is to recap where we are now. The second thing that I would like to do is to start talking about specific Rukia problems. So maybe people who have financial problems, people who have problems having children, people who have problems in their marriage, and start looking at how to tweak Rukia to make it more effective in particular instances. And I, you know, I often you know, make sort of have a go at those people who teach Rukia in like months and months and months of you know, classifications of the jinn and all the rest. One thing that I think is really, really useful in Rukia, learn your generic Rukia, which you should have got from successful self-Rukia. Then from there, learn how to tweak your Rukia. And you're not going to tweak it massively. You know, some people will say, you know, if it's Ayn, read Al-Falaq. If it's magic, read Surat Al-Nas. No, it doesn't work like that. Your generic Rukia is a base. You always build on your base. You always use your generic, basic Rukia as a base. And I'm going to put it on the screen in a minute, and I'm going to talk you through it so you can see my generic Rukia, so that you get, you know, you get confident with it. That's your base. But then we're going to talk about how do I start to tweak my Rukia in certain specific cases. And I think you might be surprised, because I rarely change the surah. Uh, sometimes, but I rarely change the surah. What I mostly do is tweak other things around the ruqya to make particular cases more effective. So you talk about financial loss, talk about somebody who has just, you know, for example, is falling asleep all of the time, somebody who has, I don't know, like loads of different, uh, you know, cases, children who have ruqya problems and whatever. And what I want to do is to go into real world case studies. And I'm going to use these from my own emails and my own, um, my own sort of questions I've been asked. But I am going to change some of the details and anonymize them. Because not fair to the patients to say, you know, hi, I'm a student in Kalima. I, come, I live in, you know, Mizhar. And, you know, I'm just asking you that I have this really bad problem with my wife. And she said this to me. And I said, no, it's not going to be like that. Because we might know who the person is. Instead of that, I'm going to totally anonymize it. I'm going to change a couple of, of details. I'm going to take away where the person lives and what the person does. And I'll try not to use any from Dubai anyway. But, you know, don't worry. I never, ever, ever share details of what people tell me. But generic case studies, that is anonymized case studies. Here is a person who has a child and their child is exhibiting one, two, three, four. What do we do? What do we do? And we're going to really try and get you guys to think about what we do. And you guys to kind of say, if I was in that position, what would I do? And I'm going to start asking questions. I'm going to say to you guys, okay, put, raise your hand. What would you do in this case study? 
what would you advise that person to do? And you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to answer. I mean, people can, you know, whoever's confident. But I, I want to build people who are really, you know, knowledgeable in this field. I don't just want you to get entertained, go home and say, yeah, I found out that the jinn do this and the jinn do that. I want you guys to be people that if you experience this, la samahullah, may Allah not allow that to happen, or if your family, you know, may Allah not allow that to happen, experience something, or you come across someone in your life from a family member or a friend, you can give them really, really good, sensible, best practice advice. And I'm all about best practice. You know, like I, I, I really do look at the world of medicine and I really do copy concepts and principles from the world of medicine, like talking about, you know, best practice, ethics, uh, things like that, talking about how is the best way in a generic sense of a process chart or a flow chart, how is the best way for us to deal with this problem in these specific cases? And if you want to move your rukia up to level two, it's all about specifics. It's all about the details. It's all about you saying, okay, generic Rukia, we tell everybody, do the seven-day program. I think most of you guys got to there, yeah? I get some people send me an email, it's like, one brother goes to your Rukia course, he told me to do the seven-day program. Alhamdulillah, you know, he's got step one. Maybe step two, he told me to go on and do this Rukia, and he gave me a sheet of ayat to read. Brilliant, we, we're there. Now we want to go up a level. Say someone has a child with a problem, financial issues, marriage issues, um, uh, issues of being attacked by the jinn in certain places, rukia not working, uh, something is happening, something else. What is our best practice? How do we go about tweaking the rukia or tweaking the advice to make it best suited to each particular case? And I think there's another layer of specialization later on, which I won't cover today. There is another layer, there is another stage. Uh, you know, when you talk about some of these more advanced topics and, you know, but I, I, me personally, I think you build from the basics. So right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, flick the screen, or I'm going to ask the guys to flick the screen for me. And here is my very simple uh, website. It'll take a while for it to just kick in. I'm sure the guys will fix the projector bit by bit. But you don't really need the projector. You don't actually need to see what's written there. You just need to follow, like, sort of follow what it looks like. Okay. So this is the website. The website is changing, but this is the, the old version anyway. And, uh, or at least inshallah it's changing. This is the old version. And the first thing you see when you go to Muhammad Tim Humble is you see, where do I start? This is a good place to start. I talked through it, through it, you through it last time. So that's a good article to send people when they say to you, where do I start? Where do I, like, what do I do first? You know, I've got all these problems. I've tried Rukia. It doesn't work. Mental note, guys. If anyone says to you, they've tried Rukia, I've been to Iraqi, it doesn't work. You know what I call the defeatist mentality. So they'll come to you and say, Salaamu Alaikum, I've got a Rukia problem. I've been to all the Iraqis. I've done all the Rukia. It didn't work. What do you advise me to do? What do we always advise them to do? What's our best practice? Rewind. I say, pause it, rewind. Go right back to the beginning. Because we know that the Quran works and Rukia works. So if your Rukia didn't work, it's not the Quran that's wrong. It's something you're doing or you did in that Rukia that's wrong. 
And at that point, you tell them, I recommend you do this and this and this, and they say, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. Yep, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. Yeah, I read that every day. I read that. You know, you say, read Al-Falaq and Al-Nas. They say, yeah, I read that every day. Again, pause, rewind. Say to them, I know you read it every day, yeah, and you're doing really well, and may Allah bless you in that, but I want you to do it with me from the beginning, because the only way for me to see where you're at is for me to take you right to the very, very, very beginning again. You know, like, if you went to a doctor, and you said to that doctor, doctor, I've already been to all the best surgeons in the world, they couldn't help me, so what are you going to do? What would the doctor say? Rewind, go back to the beginning, give me your case history from the first day, tell me what's been going on, bit by bit. So this article here, I'm not going to read it, I read it in the last course, is all about basically, where do I start? And it basically says to people, it basically says to people that, go back to the beginning and start from scratch. So then we have the seven-day Rukia detox program. And as you know, this only lasts seven days. It doesn't involve any day-to-day Rukia. So let's just go through the seven-day detox program bit by bit. Uh, there's a whole load of introduction, but uh, we're just going to basically take you through the basics of it. Seven-day Rukia program is recite on water, recite on olive oil, and then take the water and olive oil and use them during the week. That's all the seven-day program is. You can read the instructions on the website later on in detail. You can watch the video, Successful Self-Rukia, where I talk you through the whole program step by step. But basically it is, get some water, get some oil, recite on the water one time at the beginning of the week, a long recitation, probably a couple of hours, read on it a long time, read on the oil, blow into the water, blow into the oil, so <laughs> blow into the water, blow into the, into the oil, and then use that water and oil during the week over the seven days according to the instructions. Now, this is a very, very, very simple treatment. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? What do I think are the advantages of it? What do I think are the disadvantages? The advantages of it, number one, it's simple. That's one advantage. Number two, it only requires Rukia to be done at the beginning of the week. And so for people who are too busy, for people who can't read Quran, you can read for them and give them the water and oil. There's no live Rukia needed on the patient. You can get someone else in the family to read on the water and the oil and give it to them. Again, I don't recommend you take water and oil from people you don't know or you don't trust because magicians... You know, that's not a good idea. I've got some water I've read Al-Falaq on and it turns out that it's got the names of the shaitan inside. That's not good. But from people you trust, you know, somebody reads on the water, on the oil for you, give it to somebody else. So it's simple. It doesn't require live rukia, meaning rukia over the patient. The third thing is that it's pretty mild in reactions. It's unlikely someone will take the, the it's, it's what they call maybe in medicine, well tolerated. It's not likely that someone will take it and go and hit the ceiling. Like they might if you did Rukia on them. It's more likely that they'll get some pain, feeling unwell, lethargic, not feeling very good about themselves, and then they'll pick up during the week. The, the next benefit I think is really good for it is it gets rid of the simple cases. The whole purpose of the seven-day program 
is to get rid of 50% of cases before you even start. And that is get rid of all of the people who have either nothing wrong with them or who have mild and minor afflictions, a minor affliction from the evil eye, maybe you know some small problem, and the seven-day program gets rid of it. And they feel great at the end of the seven days. And then you can say to them, you know, you should read on yourself, you know, read Baqarah a couple of times. And, you know, you can, you can build on it from there. But the purpose is to get rid of the cases that don't need the treatment. The, the next purpose is, and this is my, you know, my go-to method, is that we use the seven-day program as a test to see who needs urgent treatment. Now, one caveat, which is huge, Never rely on a single test to diagnose whether someone has a Rukia problem or not. Never rely on a single session, a single test, ever. The shaitan will manipulate how you see things. As Allah said, يُخَيَّلُ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ سِحْرِهِمْ أَنَّهَا تَسْعَى يُخَيَّلُ He will make you imagine in your eyes that something is there that is not there. Don't rely on a single session, don't rely on a single result. You don't get a scientist who does an experiment with one person and one result and then says, yeah, you know, like the conclusion is that you, ha you have this or you have that. Be patient when diagnosing people. Leave it over time. Let time go. Try a few times, a few different things. Your basic gold standard method of testing someone is if they have symptoms that are not going away, they still have a problem. That's my gold standard. And I've heard so many things. If they twitch when you read Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbil Nas, if they jump when you read Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbil Falaq, if you read uh, something from, you know, uh, Surah, for example, Muddathir, they will do this. That is all complete rubbish. You can take it and you can just literally put it in the dustbin in your mind because it's completely false and it's extremely unreliable. The best method of telling whether someone has a problem is a good history of their case, a good history of their case, followed by an analysis of their symptoms. That is the best way. Followed by a subsequent analysis after Rukia. So let's say three things. Number one, case history. When did the problem start? The first thing, if any of you have been to me for a Rukia session, I'll tell you the first thing I say to pretty much everybody is, tell me a time when you didn't have a problem. Go back to the beginning of your life, maybe you're a you know, five-year-old child, but when was it that you didn't have a problem? When was it that you were fine and healthy and well and, and good? When was that? Right, what happened first? What happened second? What happened third? then what happened? And you build up a case history of the person's life, what happened with regard to this problem. It started last week, I just started scratching. Have you ever had any nightmares before that? Have you ever had anything happen before that? Any family problems before that? And you start to isolate it, because people don't always know the truth. They'll say, you know, last week I just started scratching. You say, okay, have you had any other sort of problems? No, no, nothing. Okay, what about sleep? How well do you sleep? Oh, I've had the worst nightmares recurring every day for the last 10 years. Okay, so we realize the problem didn't start last week. It's very likely that the problem started 10 years ago and not last week. So you start to build up a case study. 
you get an idea of what they think their symptoms are. Try not to prompt them too much. Because if you say nightmare, <coughs> if you say nightmares, they tend to say yes. You know, shaking, yes. Itching, yeah. You know, and it gets like this for a long time. Bismillah. So one thing that's really important is let them naturally tell you symptoms and then prompt them. Start to just sort of say, okay, what about your sleeping pattern? How many, how many hours do you sleep at night? And my real question is, do you suffer from fre frequent recurring nightmares? But I don't want to say that to them because they're going to say yes. So I say, how many hours do you sleep at night? Oh, I thought, you know, on and off, I sleep really bad. Why is that? Oh, these nightmares, right. Got it. Okay, tick. And when you go through my video with Abu Ibrahim, we talk about some symptoms of Rukia. Don't go through them and ask, but ask indirectly and find out, okay, what do they think their symptoms are? Like I had a case study of a brother who came to me and said to me, my only symptom is that I become very, very tired. This is my only symptom. Okay. When we investigated further, we found that he had many, many other symptoms. And that this was just his main one that was bothering him and that was the one that was at the front of his head and that's why he was telling about that particular symptom. Then do a Rukia session with an open mind. Do not say, it's magic, there you go, go home, Bismillah, here we go, it's magic, we're going to treat it like this. With a very open mind, do a Rukia session. Make a note at the end of what you saw in terms of your symptoms and ask the patient how they felt during the Rukia session. This is where it's really important not to prompt them again. Because if you say, do you get any twitching? Well, you know, like actually my shoulder was twitching, you know, like, and honestly, it's terrible. If I start telling you about gin moving in the body, everyone in the audience will start like doing this, yeah? It's really true. People, it's, it's a psychological thing. So try to sort of say, how did you feel? That looked okay to me. You know, sometimes I give them a reverse, bit of reverse psychology and I say to them, yeah, that you, you know, you looked okay to me. No, I had this burning sensation in my ear. Okay, what did that feel like? Build up a picture. And even when you've built up a picture, what does these three things, your case history, your um, initial patient-led diagnosis, where the patient tells you what they think is wrong with them, Rukia results from a Rukia session, what do you get out of that at the end? You get out of it nothing more than a hypothesis. Nothing more than a hypothesis or a prognosis. Nothing else. You do not get a guaranteed answer. And as, or as long as you think you've got a guaranteed answer, you'll be wrong and you'll be embarrassingly wrong. Like you'll just totally miss the mark. I did that one time. I got a brother come in. He said, I've got evil eye. I said, okay, tell me about your symptoms. He said, well, I was in school. Um, and when I was in school, I was doing really, really well, really well in my exams, and I just stopped one day. I failed all my exams, dropped out of school, all these bad things happened to me, and I thought, yeah, you've got the evil eye. That's totally consistent with what we know about the evil eye. You've got the evil eye. Right at the very end, I said, uh, just tell me a bit about your family. He's like, oh yeah, my family are all magicians. <laughs> okay. So I was about to send him home, with a case of the evil eye, when I realized that he's suffering from magic. He's not suffering from the evil eye, or he may be suffering from the evil eye as well, but he, and it, 
you know, it didn't make sense to me. The evil eye wasn't matching up with all of his symptoms. Like he has movement in the body and like jinn going around and waking him up at night and whatever. And I'm thinking that just doesn't quite tie with the evil eye. But you know, he was in school, he was doing really well and then he failed, you know, maybe it's Ainul Jinn or something, the evil eye from the jinn, the jinn following the eye or something. And then as soon as he said that to me, it clicked. We treat him for magic and we realize that he's actually suffering from magic. So what you get at the end is a hypothesis and not a guarantee. It is an idea of what might be wrong with him. Now it's very important that you understand something, and I never used to know the word for this, but it's, it's a true word, it's a very, very useful word. A cognitive bias. Something called a cognitive bias. You can search it on Wikipedia. A cognitive bias. Basically a bias in your brain. What is a cognitive bias? I'll give you a simple example. A cognitive bias is you are investing money in a company and you've invested a large chunk of money and you see that that company is going down the drain. So what do you do? What does everybody do? Invest more money. Which is, of course, the completely wrong thing to do because you can see that you're going to lose your money. You can see the company is going down the drain. But you have something called a cognitive bias. In other words, your brain is biased to what you have previously decided. Your brain is, we would say, male or nafs in Arabic. Your nafs has gone over to one thing and it's not leaving it even though it's becoming obvious to you that it's no good. And you see people literally throwing money again and you see it in gamblers. They go into the, you know, the casino and they gamble and they lose. And so they gamble again and they lose and they gamble again and they lose and they just keep gambling and losing. You're thinking, look, after half the night, wouldn't you have walked out and just say, cut my losses? No, 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 again, again. You develop a cognitive bias because your brain has kind of settled on a certain idea. This is very dangerous in Rukia. So what happens is you've decided that, you know, because you know so much about Rukia, that this problem is the evil eye. And it leads you to ignore real symptoms. And it happens in medicine. It happens with doctors as well. The doctor has decided you're suffering from epilepsy and can't see that you're clearly suffering from something different because they have made an investment of time and energy in thinking about the epilepsy that you're suffering from. So they keep piling you with more and more epilepsy medication and more and more of it and more and more of it and more and more and more and treatments and specialists because the doctor, if he was awake to his symptoms, would see that he's actually being biased. He can see in front of him that it's not epilepsy and he realized two weeks ago it's not epilepsy. But because he had made that decision previously, he becomes biased to the effort and the energy he has spent making that decision. So this happens in Rukia as well. You've decided the person is not, there's nothing wrong with them, and even though you start to see signs that they have a, a gin problem, you still say there's nothing wrong with you, it's psychological, ignore the twitching, ignore the floating, ignore the you know, moving up and down, no, it's psychological, it's just your brain. Because why? You've made yourself something and you've latched onto it like a leech and you don't let go. This is a natural state of the human nafs, it, all of us do it. Wikipedia, just the word cognitive bias, you'll see loads of examples. People do it in finance, people do it in jobs, people do it in everything. You invest a lot of time in something and you stay doing something you know fine well is wrong because you invested so much time in doing it. So be careful about that. 
When you make a diagnosis for someone, keep it as a rough idea hypothesis and keep an open mind and let yourself be swayed by other things as things develop and always be willing to say, I'm wrong. And that's a fundamental Islamic principle. Always be willing to say, I'm wrong. I made a mistake. I got it wrong. I'm, you know, we need to change the treatment. And Alhamdulillah, Rukia has a brilliant thing about it, which is that the treatment is not that different. So it's not like you're giving someone, you know, cancer drugs when they have like a hormone problem or you're giving someone, you know, like, you know, at the end of the day, you're giving someone a similar kind of treatment. But just, you know, for your own best practice, don't become hooked on one decision. So the seven-day program is what I use as a, my initial test. You know, like kind of, when you go to the doctor, the doctor has an initial test, right? Pretty much everything you go for, he's going to put that, you know, stethoscope on your chest, and he's going to look in your ear, and he's going to look in your eye, and he's going to kind of, you know, poke around. And, you know, that's kind of what every doctor does, right? Like when you go to a gen gen general practitioner, you know, he might take your blood pressure, and, you know, just take your temperature. That's sort of generic stuff. The seven-day program, that's my generic stuff. That's what I do with pretty much everyone. I say, do it. Let's see how you go. Tell me how it is after a week, and now let's review. So what will happen after the seven-day program? We analyze the symptoms again. Is the seven-day program giving us further evidence for this? Or is the seven-day program indicating to us that, no, it's maybe something different? If you're unsure, don't be frightened to ask them to do it again. Because it's not like it's harmful for you, you know, it's, it's perfectly healthy, it has no side effects. Brilliant difference between Rukia and medicine. You know, one of the things I always tell everybody, you know, that Rukia has no side effects. Yeah, there's no medicine in the world that doesn't have a side effect of some sort. You know, open up the leaflet and it will say side effects, you know, like mild cough, temperature, rash, death, you know, loads of various other things, you know, in these, like, in these leaflets. Rukia has no side effects. Nothing except good. The Quran brings nothing except good. So inshallah, you know, there's no harm in asking them, okay, let's do it again. Sometimes if, you know, basically, I would say, in your process, after the seven-day program, you have one of two decisions to make. Either you're very confident that there's no problem, or you know there's a problem, or you're unsure. And unsure and knowing there's a problem go together in the same, in the same box. So either you know there's a problem, unsure, they, they're together. Or on the other side, like A is if you know the problem or you're unsure. B is you think there's no issue. If you think there's no issue, what do you tell the patient to do? What does everyone do? Go home, there's nothing wrong with you, go to the doctor. And that is also wrong. What you say to them is, okay, we haven't found a problem in this test. What I want you to do, go home, do a little bit of regular rukya on yourself, nothing too intensive, just read on yourself, you know, sort of al-falaq al-nas, you know, sort of regular rukya from time to time. Uh, you know, do the seven-day program every few months, and let's see if anything changes in three months or six months. That is very good best practice. I mean, that is my best practice. I always find it to be best because it catches the one time when you really mess things up and you have someone with a serious affliction that you missed and you think they don't have a problem. You never say to anyone, you've not got a problem, go home, you're fine. You need to go to a psychiatrist. You just got mental issues, go away. Instead, what we say to them is, I haven't got anything that I want to do for your treatment right now. 
I'm quite happy with how the seven-day program went. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to sort of do your adhkar for protection. You know, read falaq you know, and nas over yourself before you go to sleep and all the rest. And once a month, repeat the seven-day program uh, for, let's say, three months. After three months, or if you feel anything has changed, come and see me again. What that does is that helps to cement whether you are right or whether you are wrong. And what's the gold standard about them being better? Are the symptoms completely gone? Completely gone. Even after a month of further rukia, the symptoms are completely gone. We mentioned this last, in the last rukia session, in the last workshop. So someone comes to you and says, you know, I think I might have a gin problem. I am waking up suddenly at night and uh, I feel very um, sort of uneasy. So, okay, that's pretty consistent with a gin problem, but let's see, there's lots of things it could be. So let's have a look. Seven-day program comes, I feel fine, I didn't feel any problems, I felt great all throughout the program, I feel great now. Um, okay, you still having any sleeping problems? I, you know, I don't know, because it's been a week. I kind of feel, yeah, maybe, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Okay, so what I'm going to ask you to do is, we didn't get anything major out of it, but let's just keep going, do your adhkar protection, you know, tawbah, come to some Islamic classes, learn about your religion, and, you know, after that, what you're going to do is, once a month, repeat the seven-day program, come back to me after three months, let's see how you are. They come back and say, problem's gone, I feel great, uh, I'm not waking up anymore in the night. It could be that the problem was medical and the rukia fixed it, it could be the problem was a jinn problem and this seven-day program fixed it, it could be that it was something completely different. But alhamdulillah, the problem is fixed. If they come back to you after three months and say to you, I've still got the problem, um, at that point, I would probably say, you know, using judgment, you might want to definitely, at some point, you would want to see a medical professional and see if there's anything medical there. Um, I usually advise people right off the bat, go and see a medical professional if, if it's something that I think is, has a medical aspect to it. Um, but on top of that, just, you know, keep an eye on them and just say, okay, just, you know, like, let's just keep an eye on it, keep doing your adhkar, keep doing your recitation, let's see what's happening. And over time, things will become clear. You know, over time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is al-fatah, the one who opens the doors for you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will open the door for you to know what the person's problem is, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. But now we deal with the next case. And that is when you're unsure what is going on, like, you're like, hmm... You know, like this is, I, I don't know, I feel it might be a problem, it might not be. Or, you know there's a problem. So they do the seven-day program and say it was a nightmare, I was shaking all over, I was waking up, I was screaming, I was, all this type of stuff. Not very common with the seven-day program, it's quite mild, but you know, you get some sort of reaction. So right, now we move them on to the full Rukia program. Because the seven-day program is just a baby treatment. It's the same when your doctor just puts a stethoscope on your chest and goes, yeah, yeah, you sound fine, go away. It's like the same thing. You want, it's, it's a very, very basic treatment. You want to lead it up to the next treatment. And normally, I still don't get involved in Rukia at this point. I tell people, do the full Rukia program for one month. And I give them two options. You can do it by yourself. Or preferably, you can do it within the family. So to have, like, say, a lady comes, get your husband to read on you, read on yourself and get your husband to read on you. And we do that for about a month, one month. And the reason we do it for about a month is to develop a pattern. And we tell them, make yourself a little diary of what's happening during the month of doing this full Rukia program. 
Now, this full Rukia program involves a number of things. It involves all of the adhkar. It involves doing the seven-day program every other week. And it involves 45 minutes of Rukia a day. And that's where I come to my point that most people don't do it because it's very hard to do 45 minutes a day when you're working. 45 minutes of Rukia every single day for one month along with all of the other points that are mentioned in the program. And it's the link below my link on the seven-day program. Anyway, when you, fit, you see the seven-day program, the first one is where do I start? The second one is the seven-day program. The third link is the full Rukia program and do it for a month. If you have a severe reaction or something really bad is happening, let me know. Otherwise, I'll see you at the end of the month and I'll see how you are managing. Bring me your diary of what happened. It's important they keep a diary because people don't remember. People say, yeah, I was kind of fine. Oh yeah, I did have that. Like, it just, it, it's very difficult. So instead of that, what you want to do is you want to say to people, keep yourself a little diary. Don't burden me with like, everything you did in the day and what you ate and you know, like, other things. Just literally did the Rukia, felt okay, a little bit shaky on this ayah, a little bit shaky here. Uh, towards the end, this was happening, uh, I noticed this. And you get them just to journal their ideas, just you know, two, three lines, and either email it to you or whatever, but in a, in a big collection of what happened over two weeks or what happened over 30 days. At this point, you should be much, much better equipped to make a decision as to whether you want to recite over them um, or whether you want to continue them on with the treatment. If they are managing well with the treatment, so this is our next process, if they are managing well with the treatment and you feel happy that they are coping, even though they have a problem, you know, they're shaking, they're screaming, they're crying, but they're managing, then I don't advise that you need to go and do Rukia on them. If they are coping themselves, leave it between them and Allah. If they're clearly not coping, get a family member involved. You know, if they clearly can't do it on themselves, get a family member involved. If you feel it's a really exceptional case and things are really not looking great uh, and, you know, you really have some concerns or you want some further, some further information, do a Rukia session or two or three yourself. Do not commit to doing Rukia for them forever. I made this mistake, wallahi, I consider it to be one of the greatest mistakes I made in Rukia is that I would say to people, yeah, I'll do Rukia for you. And then it becomes a promise, binding, that Allah will ask you about your Muqiyama. Say, I will come and do one session for you, I will see how you are. Two sessions for you, a week of Rukia, whatever, see how you are. And you carry on like this. And that is the basic method of Rukia. Someone might say, what am I reading in the 45 minutes? So I'm super strict on this. The only thing you are permitted to read in the 45 minutes is a proven sunnah for Rukia. And the proven sunnah for Rukia can be divided into two things, ayat of the Qur'an and dua authentically reported from the Prophet And as for the ayat of the Qur'an that are proven in Rukia, Surah Al-Fatiha, Surah Al-Baqarah, Ayat Al-Kursi, and I would suggest that you put most of your emphasis on 
the latter two, the last two, al-falaq and al-nas, because they were revealed for this purpose. Now, am I, Muhammad Tim, saying to you, you should not read Yasin and Safat and, you know, al-A'raf and the other? No, not at all. But I'm not allowing you to read it inside of the 45 minutes. If you want to read Surah Al-A'raf, read it after the 45 minutes. If you want to read Surah Al-Safat, read it after the 45 minutes. If you want to read Surah Yasin, read it after the 45 minutes. Do not replace Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbil Falaq with Surah Yasin. Because first of all, Al-Falaq and Al-Nas were revealed for the purpose of Ruqya. They were revealed for this reason. And there is no way that you should turn away from something that was revealed for that reason to something that has a general shifa, because the whole Qur'an has a shifa in it. And there's no harm in reading any part of the Qur'an. But I'm really strict on this. I've tested it with many people. Limit yourself in the 45 minutes to, let's say, 35 minutes of reciting the Qur'an, al-Fatiha, maybe seven times, or an odd number, or three times. Um, uh, a part of Surah Al-Baqarah, or if you like Ayat Al-Kursi, Amin Al-Rasul, Al-Kafirun, Al-Ikhlas, Al-Falaq, and Al-Nas. And a particular emphasis on the last two or the last three. Again and again and again and again. It's better you do it in an odd number. Seven is authentically reported, three is authentically reported, and any odd number because in Allah witr, yuhibbul witr. Allah is odd in number and He loves those things which are odd in number. That's it. Don't give it 76 times, 77 times, 23 times in the day. This is all bid'ah. Give it either three or seven or any odd number that you wish. And if you do an even number, it doesn't harm you. But don't make it like I always read it 77 times after every prayer. This is bid'ah and it will not help you. So, you, uh, the person goes on you know, sort of uh, reading this. Then, if they want to read, and I, I, I read myself, if they want to read Or they want to read Or they want to read or they want to read uh, or they want to read or they want to read any other part of the Quran you do it after the 45 minutes and I'm going to give you an evidence for this and I think I'm one of the only people who's maybe that I've seen who said this but I'll tell you why the shaitan has a particular plot which Ibn al-Qayyim and others mentioned. And that is, the shaitan will take you away from al-fadil to al-maftul. He will take you away from something which is better to something which is good but not as good. Something which is better to something which is good but not as effective. And so what I don't want to happen is Everyone thinks that Al-Falaq and Al-Nas, you know, the baby surahs, we teach them to our kids, not going to make any difference. Let me read something complicated, it's going to work better. And the reality is that nothing is going to work better than the two surahs that were revealed for this purpose. So I always push people, in that 45 or 35 minutes, you are reading the Sunnah for Ruqya. First of all, because the Barakah is going to be in following the Hadi of the Prophet and the guidance uh, and the, the, the the, the way of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and no doubt the fact that you're using the 
Sur and the ayat the Sahaba used and you're doing it in the right way. Then after that, if you want to make more time and you want to read any part of the Quran, all of the Quran is Shifa. Read the ayat of magic for the one who has magic. Read the ayat of Ain for the one who has Ain. Read the ayat of Jinn, Suratul Jinn for the one who has Jinn possession. Ala kayfak, like they say, do it as you like. But don't replace that first 45 minutes because at the end of the day, always the way the Prophet ﷺ did something is better than the way that anyone else after him would do it. Even the likes of Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, even the likes of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, and the great Raqis of history, the way the Prophet ﷺ did it is always, always better. So I always put that first. And I believe that's a part of the statement of Allah. Ya amanu, la tuqaddimu do not put yourself in front of Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so we always put the Sunnah first. Then, it doesn't matter how much we read. I read, I, I love reading from uh, those ayahs I mentioned. I read ayahs that are specific to certain circumstances. Ayat of magic for magic. Ayat of jinn for jinn issues. Ayat of ayn for ayn issues. Um, ayat which affect me as a, as a person. Like I often read from Surah Al-Anbiya, وَأَيُّوبَ إِذْ نَادَ رَبَّهُ أَنِّي مَسَّنِيَ الضُّرُّ وَأَنْتَ أَرْحَمُ الرَّاحِمِينَ And the dua of Yunus, La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-dhalimeen. And these are all within the one page of Surah Al-Anbiya. Sometimes we read Surah Safat, sometimes we read Surah uh, you know, Al-Jinn, sometimes we read Surah Yaseer. We read a lot of surahs of the Quran. But we don't go away from that first, you know, 35, 45 minutes of strictly adhering to Al-Fatiha, Al-Falaq, Al-Nas, you know, Ayat Al-Qusa, etc. Because these are proven in their virtue in this field. And Allah knows best. Okay. What do you do for the last 10 minutes of the 45? Authentic dua mentioned by the Prophet Sallallahu and you know, wallahi, people do not know. And if I were to say, what is, if someone to ask me the question, Muhammad Tim, what is the biggest misconception or the biggest thing people don't know while they're doing ruqya, I would say the value of dua. The value of dua and the value of leaving your sins. But definitely the value of dua. Because people, you know, read and read and read. But the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, when he would read, he would say, for example, أَذْهِبِ الْبَأْسَ رَبَّ النَّاسِ إِشْفِ وَأَنْتَ الشَّافِي لَا شِفَاءَ إِلَّا شِفَاءُكَ شِفَاءً لَا يُغَادِرُ سَقَمًا Make the illness go away, Lord of mankind. Cure them and you are the curer. There is no cure except for your cure, a cure that leaves no sickness. So I often spend the last 10 minutes or the first 10 minutes reading these dua or in between when you get tired, switch to the dua, read the dua and read and you know, blow over the person, read over the person. And if you want to refer to how to blow and how to read, the Quran is a cure is an entire video on that topic. Then after that, like after that 45 minutes is up, freestyle. Whatever you want to do, yeah, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to read, whatever any Raqi has told you is beneficial, Bismillah. As long as it's a Sunnah, it's not a Bid'ah, as long as it's from the Quran and the names of Allah and the authentic Sunnah, Bismillah. You know, in clear Arabic with no shirk, no confusing words, no la like these strange words, as long as it is according to the conditions of Ruqya, which we mentioned in the last workshop and other workshops, Bismillah, go ahead and do it. And that I find is the best way of joining. 
Because someone says to me, and a lot of people disagree, I'm, I'm telling you something very controversial, a lot of people will come to me and say to me, Muhammad Tim, you teach people the wrong way. You should teach them when they know that it's magic to only read so I say, okay, Akhi, Jamil, what did the Prophet ﷺ do when he was afflicted by magic? So he read Al-Falaq and Al-Nas. This is it. Did he read what Taba'u Shayateen? No. Not even in a single riwayah. Now I'm not saying don't read it because the whole of the Quran is Shifa. I'm saying don't replace the guidance of the Prophet ﷺ with Pila Waqal. This guy said it works, it's proven, all of the Rakis know it works, everyone who does Rukia know it works. It does work, and I know it works, but I still don't have that, you know, feeling to put it ahead of Al-Falaq and Al-Nas that were revealed for this purpose. And then they will say, yeah, you don't know, it's a different kind of magic, you know, you haven't taught the people that, you, you know, if it's Sihr Tafriq, you have to use what Taba'u, and if it's Sihr Al-Qatal, you have to use Al-Falaq and Al-Nas. We say, Qul hatu burhanakum in kuntum sadiqeen. Give me your proof. You have a dalil from the sunnah, from the aqwal of the salaf, you have something I can hold on to, or just, you know, you know what your soul desires. Reality is they have no proof. So I'm not saying leave their way, their way is really good. But I'm saying just give yourself that initial period of going according to the strict sunnah, and then branch off and go to the sunnah which is allowed. And the Prophet ﷺ said, show me your ruqya, and whatever ruqya did not contain shirk, he allowed it. So inshallah you have freedom to do whatever it is that you want. But begin with what he began with. Abda'u bima bada Allahu bih. I begin with what Allah began with, and what his messenger wasallam began with. And then we will go off and do our different ayat and our different things and learn all our specifics, and we will tweak. The reason I'm telling you all this and the reason I've taken so long to tell you all of this is this is your basic ruqya regardless of the problem. Regardless of sihr, ayn, sihr and ayn, jinn possession, uh, jinn possession followed by ayn, ayn followed by jinn possession, sihr tafriq, sihr qatar, sihr tadmir, sihr, you know, go through all of the types of sihr that anyone has ever written about and this method will not let you down in any of them it will not let you down in any method you know you you stick to this method then what we're going to learn today is how do we tweak what is past that 45 minutes how do we tweak what is beyond that to make the ruqya more effective and the more you learn about ruqya and some of you guys will go off and read you know the likes of you know amazing books like this book by um Sheikh Mashhur Hassan Salman on Fath uh, al-Mannan. It's called Fath al-Mannan, the opinions of Ibn Taymiyyah with regard to the jinn. Uh, and these kind of, you know, books with just loads of information in and loads of ayat and ideas and whatever. But always build them on top of your generic, standard, everybody can do it, Rukia. And, you know, I, I probably say Sheikh Adil had a big influence in, in, on me in this because I saw that he made it easy for the people. If we start saying, you know, if it's sihr tafriq, you have to use this. If it's sihr uh, tadmir, you have to use this. If it's sihr al-qatal, you have to use this. If it's this, you have to use this. We make ruqya beyond the ability of your average Muslim. It becomes only the specialization of a handful of people, and we've already agreed that it's impossible for that to work. So we give a generic ruqya that works for everybody, and then we tweak it later on beyond that, 
and we start looking at specific case studies and we start looking at how we can, you know, how we can sort of deal with things and how we can improve. I wanted to start taking you through some specific uh, issues or circumstances that some people have, and I think the first one we will start with is the issue of children. Because somebody comes along to you and says to you, well, you know, your Rukia method is fine and it's great, but you know, I have a little child. And let me give you a case study to illustrate that. I'll give you a couple of case studies. One case study of a person who came to me and said to me, I have um, a young child, a boy, around about, I think, seven years old, who wakes up every single night at 3 a.m. with a terrible nightmare. And it's always 3 a.m. and it's always a really, really, really bad nightmare. They become really unsettled and I have to settle them for a long, long, long period of time. Uh, and this is one of the problems. And another case, which I just put a couple in your mind while you listen to the answer, uh, of um, a, uh, a little girl who suffers from involuntary movements. So she will be, um, she will be uh, sitting down and she will just, you know, like move her hand or shake or move her leg or something like that. And so we want to sort of ask ourselves, okay, could these two both be, I mean, is there anything to say that it's not a gin issue? I mean, both of them could be. Both of them have, you know, people do shake when it comes to the gin. People do wake up with nightmares. Um, what else are you thinking about? You're also thinking about the fact that for the, for the, for the boy, waking up at 3 a.m. every night is very consistent. You know, like, if she said he has nightmares from time to time, I would have said, you know, probably just need to, you know, take the toys out of his room and he'll be fine. But you sort of talk about someone waking up at 3 a.m. every single night on the dot with the same nightmare. That is something that has a, you know, certainly an indication of a problem. Is it conclusive? No. Because a person could have gone through a really bad experience when they were younger and had a really deep, you know, psychological scar and, you know, sort of something like that. But, you know, it's certainly well worth investigating. It's well, well worth investigating. So how do we deal with children? Well, what I do with children is I divide children into three separate cases or three separate boxes. The first is concern over children without confirmed symptoms. So this is the likes of the parent who comes to you and says, my son is just not himself. He just doesn't seem right. Do you dismiss that? Do you say to somebody, oh, well, you know, like, you know, he'll be fine. Just, you know, give him a couple of days. No, you have to take it seriously. Like a doctor, if someone comes and says, I have a headache, you know, this person might have a brain tumor. You know, at the end of the day, you have to take it seriously. They come and they say that my child is just not themselves, or he's had a rash that hasn't gone away for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So what do you sort of do? Usually at this point, I recommend the seven-day program to them, Missing out the honey if the child is less than one year old. I personally don't miss it out for my own children, but you know, out of the whole disclaimer of not giving honey to children who are one years old and under, you know, just out of like 
crossing the, the T's and dotting the I's, I would say don't give honey to the child if he's less than one years old. According to medical advice, yani. also don't give honey to a diabetic and all, you know, all the other stuff. I usually ask people, are you diabetic, anything like that? If there's anything in the program you can't use, then don't use it. You know, don't be taking honey and then end up in a, you know, like, <laughs> in like DK or something like that and you end up with, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis and the person ends up in hospital because they were just drinking volume, you know, gallons and gallons of whatever, honey and all sorts of other things and not watching their glucose levels. Be careful, you know, like just, just check with people. If you're allergic to black seed, don't go and throw seven black seeds in your throat and say, you know, oh well, Allah will save me. Like we usually ask people, but yeah, so if it's concern over children, but there's no symptom, there's nothing you can grab hold of and say, yeah, this is what's wrong with them. It's a, a feeling they're not quite themselves. Maybe it's a worried parent. Maybe it's an over worried parent. Maybe it is something for real. So I usually say to them, right, Let's just take them on the seven-day program. Why do we like the seven-day program for kids? It's super easy. The parents can do the reading. They can put the oil on the child before they go to bed. Olive oil is good for your skin anyway. It'll be good for the child. You know, give them the water. I mean, you know, the children can take water no matter what age. They can have the water, you know, sterilized and boiled and whatever. And then they can, you know, just give it to them in a little, a little baby bottle. Or they can, you know, if their child, child is older, they can, uh, you know, just give them a glass of water to drink. And it's super easy. The child doesn't feel anything, you know, uh, difficult about it. The parent finds it pretty easy. And most of the time, it gets rid of the problem. And the reason it gets rid of the problem a lot of the time is because children don't have any sin. And because children don't have any sin, the shaitan struggles to remain within them, except in the most severe cases of magic. It's very hard for the, child to re for the shaitan to remain within the child, because the, there's nothing to hold on to. You know, shaitan feeds off of sins and disobedience and whatever, and it's, there's nothing to hold on to when it comes to this child, because the child is sinless. So, it's, you know, at that point, I don't recommend giving the child a full rukia program. Why? It's really disruptive, you know, and it's really like not very nice for the child to sit that child down and be sort of reading in their ear and <laughs> blowing over them and, you know, it could be really scary for the child. So just start with the seven-day program. Let's see what happens. And most of those kids whose parents just have a generic concern over them will just get better, you know, alhamdulillah. You know, bear in mind, Rukia works for medical issues as well as non-medical issues. I mean, the, the parents get fine. And I usually teach the parents some basic tips for protecting your child. So as an example for that, reading over them, for a boy, for a girl. And just reading that over as the Prophet used to do over Al-Hasan, Al-Hussein, so that's you know, something that is, inshallah, really easy for the parent to do. You know, and just saying to them that, like, if you're finding a little bit of concern over your child, you know, read uh, Al-Falaqan al-Nas over them before they go to sleep, blow on them, wipe over them, as the Prophet ﷺ used to do for Aisha, and Aisha used to do for him when he was sick. If he had a fever, or if he was sick, then Aisha, radiallahu anha, she would take his hands, salawatullahi wa and she would blow Al-Falaq and Al-Nas into his hands, because his hands have Mubarakah, of course, and she would put his hands over his body, and he would do the same for his family, sallallahu alayhi wa when they were sick. So these basic tips of just, you know, 
what we call sort of like daily rukia, because some people ask the question, it's a very common question, should I be doing rukia if I don't have a problem? My answer is no, not rukia, but just daily rukia, you know, the daily sort of al-falaqan al-nas, three times after fajr, three times after asr, before you go to sleep, you know, these daily sort of protections. And you know, if necessary, if you've got a fever or something, blow over yourself, wipe over your body, you know, these basic, basic things, we've mentioned them in the video, the Quran, as a cure. So, really simple. Educate the parents, talk to them, you know, about what they should be concerned about, and make sure you give the parents a clear line, which if it is crossed, they should come back to see you. Or a clear, let's say, flag that should be raised. So, for example, if they're not getting better in a week, come back and see me. If they are, you are concerned at any time, you need to do this. And make sure also, if you think they need to see a doctor, that from good ethics is that you recommend for them to see a doctor if you think they need that. Because not good ethics, if you think the child is suffering from you know, a severe fever that they need treatment for, then it's not good ethics for you to say, yeah, yeah, do Rukia and you know, inshallah everything will be fine. No, you know, at the end of the day, you can, if you really believe this problem is one that needs medical treatment, you have to then refer them and say, while you're doing the Rukia, I think you should go and see a medical professional. If they're scared about that, because they're scared that the medical professional might give them something that goes against the Rukia or whatever, just advise them to go and see a practicing Muslim. You know, just go see a practicing Muslim doctor. And I'm quite sure that they will be aware of what is allowed in Islam and what is not allowed in Islam, inshallah. And they'll give you some good advice. And inshallah, it'll be an all clear. But just if you fear, especially with children, children can deteriorate so rapidly that you don't do something silly and have a child that comes to you with, you know, malaria or something like that, or like, you know, um, uh, like uh, meningitis or whatever, or something really, really serious. And then you say, you know, read al-falaqan al-nas and send them home. You know, when that child dies, you will feel very, very you know, uh, you would feel awful about not giving them the right advice. So make sure that, you know, if you do see that the child has something that looks to be medical, out of good ethics, even though the parents should know that anyway, don't say to someone, don't go to the doctor, but you might want to say to them, look, why don't you just take, you know, there's a, there's a good brother we know, a friend of ours, he's a good medical professional, he'll have a little look, just make sure there's nothing to be concerned about, and have you checked for this, have you checked for this, just basic, simple, advice. But that's what we do with children that don't have confirmed symptoms. The second group are children who have confirmed rukia symptoms. And I use the word rukia to mean jinn, magic, evil eye, like, and, and you are very sure that that is what is wrong with them. But the jinn doesn't take over the child. This is the exception. The jinn doesn't take over the child. That means when you read on the child, you can see that there, is an, there are problems going on, there is a rukia case to be dealt with, but the child is not losing their mind and control and, you know, the jinn sort of, and, and it's controllable. It's kind of like, let's say it's less severe. Uh, for these uh, children, I recommend the full rukia program, so that's the seven-day program included, along with the full Rukia program of the 45 minutes. But I recommend that you do it in a very passive way. Because children, you can't sit them down and lock their arms and like force them to sit still. You know, some parents bring their children to me for Rukia, and they're like, sit still, sit still. They're children. You know, like if, if they are not having a major jinn problem where the jinn is taking over them and, and causing them to like go up in the air or causing them to scream and shout and kick and hit, then just let them play 
and recite Rukia over them. Just allow them to move around, you know, allow them to be themselves, stay around near them, blow on them, read on them, read on them in the same room, but don't make them sit for 45 minutes like a statue because most children can't do it. So this is the first difference. And don't shout or scream. None of this, oh, Allah. Yeah? None of this, yeah? Because they're little children and they can get scared, they can get psychologically damaged, and they can end up having more of a problem from your shouting and screaming than they do from the jinn. You know, like I brought this to Rocky and he literally beat me with a you know, stick and started screaming at me, leave or enemy of Allah, enemy of Allah. And this child is only hearing the, these words like, why am I the enemy of Allah? What have I done? And also, just when it comes to children who don't have really severe symptoms, let the ruqya be passive. That means don't kind of grab them and like, you know, read in the ear. I usually sit them down next to me. I tell them what I'm going to do. So again, good ethical bedside manner, you know, tell them I'm going to read on you. I'm going to put my hand on your head. I might blow on you like this, you know, do you mind me doing that? Is that okay? You know, oh no, it's fine. Okay, so sit with me. Um, you can go around if you want, you know, if you start going down on the floor and playing, I'll just sit on the floor with you and let you play with your toys, as long as the toys are halal, of course. No musical toys, no toys with faces, otherwise at the end of the day you're just, you know, going one step forward, two steps back. So sit down, maybe the child, start reading on the child, you know, I've got just my maybe hand on the head, uh, maybe hand on the hand or something like that, and I'm just sitting next to the child and just reading. And maybe the child gets bored, starts fidgeting, okay, let them go, you know, they go and play with their toys on the floor. So I sit with them on the floor, just read my Quran, maybe every now and again, gentle blowing on them, ask them, are you okay, is everything all right? Everything's fine, do you want anything? And just really, you know, really gentle and simple and passive. The only time you need to get really serious about ruqya in a child is if the jinn is really taking over the child to the extent that the child is extremely violent, punching, kicking, biting, scratching, screaming, flipping themselves over. That is when you need to take a more active role. Now, it doesn't mean you need to beat them with a stick or shout and scream at them, but you do need to be a bit more active, a bit more in your face, a bit more near to them, maybe gently controlling them. And this brings me to this issue of uh, the violent jinn, but I'll just, I'll just pause that and come back to it, inshallah, in a second. So in all of the above cases, I have certain principles. Number one, at all times, the safety and the comfort of the child is paramount. Do not treat that child like an adult. It is totally unethical, it's totally wrong to treat that child as an adult. The child should feel comfortable with the ruqya, they should be relaxed, they should be happy, they, you know, you should play with them if they want to play, and, you know, maybe you want to spend five, ten minutes with them outside of the Rukia session so they don't, you know, you're not this big bad wolf who comes and, you know, shouts at them, but, you know, you come and play with them. And then later on, you, you know, maybe after a short while, you start doing a little bit of Rukia on them, give them a break, let them run around. Some people ask the question, should I do this when the child is asleep? In general, we don't recommend Rukia when people are asleep if you can avoid it. But if you're really struggling, you can try, inshallah. But we consider that to be less than perfect, to do ruqya when the person is asleep. We always try to keep the person awake, but if the child goes to sleep in the ruqya, don't pick them up and shake them. 
You know, like don't like sort of, you know, just let them go to sleep, let them wake up. If it's passive, if it's an active rookie session where the child is really violent, then you know, you've got to keep the child safe and comfortable at all times. This is a child, yeah? Not only could you go to prison for a very, very long time if you do something silly, but also you could ruin that child's life, and that's more important, you know, at the end of the day. So you treat them like a child, don't treat them like an adult. My next point, never ever hit a child. Abaddon. Doesn't matter what the jinn is doing to you, doesn't matter how much they're biting you or kicking you or scratching you, do not hit a child ever. Yeah? If you're a big adult and you whack a child over the head, you can kill them. Don't hit a child. Read the, just type in Rukia death in Google and you will get a long list of newspaper articles of people who have beaten their children to death. Because the jinn came out and let me be honest with you, hitting people in Rukia is not the gr a great idea at the best of times. If you get it wrong, you can not only go to prison for a very long time, but you won't get the jinn out either. And the jinn will just be laughing at you. It'll be like, you know, when, like, it'll be like this. It's like you trying to punch a professional boxer, right? So you go up and you throw a right hook and the boxer just goes like this, yeah? And, you know, he just dodges your hand and he's just bobbing and weaving and you're just punching air. That is what will happen if you try to hit the jinn. Unless you're really good at it and you really know what you're doing, what's going to happen is you're going to be punching air and the jinn is just going to be moving around every time, dodging your punch in so easily. And the patient is going to end up black and bruised and maybe dead. So we never, ever, ever, ever hit a child under any circumstances, even if the child is kicking you, scratching you, biting you, whatever. We don't like give him a slap, yeah? We have another alternative, which I'll talk about when we talk about violent uh, jinn. Uh, also, the hardest thing about rukia for children, and this is a major thing for me, the hardest thing about rukia for children is children can't explain their feelings like adults. So children can't tell you, I've got a jinn moving around inside of me, I can see this horrible thing. Children will tend to cry, they will tend to be very like, you know, restricted, and it's very hard to establish a baseline. Let me tell you what I mean by establishing a baseline. When I do Rukia on an adult, I always try to establish a baseline. I try to establish what is normal behavior so that I can see what is not normal. So the adult is sitting there, and I'm reading, and then the adult goes like that. That is not normal behavior. So that is outside of the baseline. Yeah, you've got a baseline that's outside of the baseline. With children, nothing is outside of the baseline. That's the problem. The child goes like that. Children do that. Children flip. Children, you know, like start playing with their fingers. If I have an adult who's playing with their fingers, I'll say to them, could you put your fingers in, flat on the floor for me? Because I want to establish whether they are playing with their fingers or the jinn are playing with their fingers. So I'll say, could you just put your hands you know, flat on the table for me if you don't mind? And the adult will sit there like this and I'll realize they're just fidgety. But the child will, you know, because children are children, and that's how they do things. So one of the hardest things is your diagnosis will often be, will often be wrong because the child can't tell you what's wrong with them. And you may misunderstand a gin problem where one isn't there because the child is just fidgety. So I like to observe the child playing naturally, see how they are. Bear in mind, a strange person coming and reading Quran in your ear is enough to make anyone fidgety. So you would expect the child to be a little bit scared, a little bit fidgety. Don't think it's the jinn's presence that's making the child scared. It's probably just you. You know, and you know, you can build over time. But what I'm saying is children need a lot longer 
time to establish what is normal and what isn't. Parents can help you because you can say to the parents, how did you feel about their behavior during the rookie session? Was that pretty much normal for you? Yeah, yeah, he's pretty, you know, just doing what he normally does. Okay, that's fine. You know, but be careful with children that they can't tell you what they're feeling and they can't give you like a, a standard of behavior that an adult would give you whereby you can tell this is a jinn and this is them. It's a lot harder with a child. If the child is old enough to understand, do discuss with them and focus on removing the fear of the shaitan. What I always focus on with my kids and with other people's kids when I see them for Rukia is you've got to remove the fear of the shaitan because cartoons, TV, music, whatever, all of it increases you in fear of the shaitan. This evil, you know, ghost that is going to come and pull me from under my bed and this monster that lives under my pillow. And what you should tell the kids is if you have a monster under your pillow, let me show you how to get rid of it. Monster gone. Monster dead. Monster no come back again. This is what we tell the kids. Make it fun for them. Like say, come on, I want to practice. We're going to practice killing the jinn or we're going to practice like, you know, pushing, making the jinn run away. So if you see a jinn, you know, like comes to you, what you're going to do? And even if they know just one word, Alhamdulillah, Subhanallah, Bismillah, it's gone. No problem. So you teach the children not to fear the shaitan. You teach the children not to fear the shaitan and not to be scared of the shaitan because the biggest weapon the shaitan has over the child is not sin. The biggest weapon the shaitan has over us is sin and ignorance. But the biggest weapon the child has over, or the shaitan has over the child is fear. The, ch the child gets scared, starts to panic, doesn't know what to do, starts screaming, doesn't tell you what's wrong with them. Say, you know, and I've seen a child, I've seen kids, little kids, who can see the jinn with their eyes and they'll say, it's okay, I just, you know, Uncle Tim, I just read on the jinn and I said, A'udhu Billah, and, I, and he ran away. You know, these are children who are experiencing what your average adult would not be able to sleep for a week if they saw. And yet these children are totally able to experience it and live through it and not have any sort of adverse effect from it because they've been drilled into them from the beginning not to fear the shaitan. So I think that's extremely important. Um, make light of the issue, make fun of the shaitan. You're allowed to make fun of the shaitan. You know, he's so weak that, you know, like every time he, you know, he sees the angels, he runs away. You know, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us, when, he, when Iblis saw the Iblis, who is the, you know, the, the strongest of them, saw the, you know, the, the, the army of angels approaching, he ran, turned his back and ran away and said, Inni akhafullah, I fear Allah. Inni ara ma la taraun, inni akhafullah. I see what you don't see and I fear Allah. Well, he runs away from the angels. What kind, you know, he's a weak old man with no power, no ability. You know, he's just a weak old man with too many children. That is the reality of Iblis. And make light to them. Don't make them feel like, you know, like if you start panicking, they are definitely going to start panicking. And a lot of people do this. You know, the child starts shaking and it's like, okay, panic time. Parents start panicking. Raki starts panicking because it's a child. And the child obviously starts panicking. And you know what I'll sometimes do is say, silly jinn. And it stops. Oh, okay, you know, it's not a big deal. It's a small, you know, the, the child feels it's very light. It's not a big deal and you don't push them too much. As in all cases, if the jinn speaks, do not engage the jinn in conversation. I have rules about when the jinn speaks. 
Number one, do not engage the jinn in conversation. Number two, do not engage the jinn in conversation. And number three, do not engage the jinn in conversation. That is the summary of my rules when the jinn speaks. Why? First of all, it's like having conversation with somebody who's not all like entirely there, yeah? Like, and second of all, they never tell you anything of benefit. And the danger in it is that you will end up doing something for them or following them. What I usually say to them is if the jinn speaks, I will say, and says, I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to do that to you. I've got a couple of methods. One, if you are hafid of the Qur'an or you've memorized a lot of the Qur'an, only respond to them with the Qur'an. So if he says, I will kill you, then say, Kullu nafsin maut. Every soul will taste death. Or say, you know, uh, When the time for a person to die comes, Allah will not delay their, you know, time to come. Or say to them, Like the magician said to Fir'aun, do whatever you like, because whatever you're going to do to me is only in the dunya. But don't start replying with your own speech because you're taking away from the ruqya. When you reply with the Qur'an, you're still doing ruqya, you're still reciting the Qur'an. So I recite the whole ayah. You know, I recite the whole ayah in response to them. If they laugh, I recite the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal. فَلْيَضْحَكُوا قَلِيلًا وَلْيَبْكُوا كَثِيرًا جَزَاءً بِمَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ Let them laugh a lot and let them laugh a little and cry a lot as a recompense for what they used to do. So you try to reply to them with the Qur'an. If you can't reply to them with the Qur'an, then don't reply to them at all. And even when you can, don't reply to them too much. Just say to them, Fear Allah and leave. And they say, yeah, but you know, I came and I can tell you about uh, this is going to happen and the Dajjal and I uh, say, yeah, whatever, leave. Fear Allah and leave and then recite your own, you're going back to Al-Falaq Al-Nas, go back to Al-Falaq Al-Nas, half an hour. The jinn is saying, but, 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 you know, like someone who's raising their hand, I'll tell you, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Don't listen to them, don't even let them, don't even tolerate them. What you do is people will say, the jinn will be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave. And someone will say, okay, alright, you're going to leave, right, let's, let's do this, bismillah. That, this is the most foolish thing you can do. Just keep reading, let read, falak and that's, I leave, I leave, I leave, I leave. Sometimes after 15 minutes, I'll say, okay, go. No, no, first I want, right, here we go again. Al-Falaq, Al-Nas, Fatiha, Baqarah, again, 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 again. And next time, I don't wait 15 minutes to talk. I wait half an hour. All that half an hour, they are saying to me, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. I'm not interested. If you wanted to go, you'll go. Like, you know, like, if you wanted to go, you would go. So then again, they'll say, I want to go, but I don't know how. This is, you know, they'll, they'll throw all sorts of things. Say, I don't know how. Say, okay, I will teach you how. This will teach them very, very, very quickly how to leave. They will suddenly remember. Keep going, 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 going. When you engage in the conversation with them, they're just taking a break, taking a breather from the ruqya, and making you waste your time. They will tell you all sorts of stories. I'll tell you where the magic is. I know a brother, Jin told him, came said, I will tell you where the magic is. I'm ready to go. I will give you everything. Let me tell you where it is. I told the brother, don't listen to the jinn. Don't believe them. If they wanted to tell you where the magic is, they would go and tell it and scream it out and not give this whole, I'll tell you where it is, I promise. So I'll tell you where it is. Okay, fine. You tell me where it is. So he says, where is it? He says, it's in your garden in your country abroad, which country you come from, uh, abroad, uh, it's, in your, it's in your garden. So he went and he, you know, he, he dug up the garden 
and uh, he had went to the exact same spot where the jinn was, had said the magic was, and guess what? Nothing is there. He goes back to the jinn, and the jinn just cackled, like laughed out loud, and went, I lied. <laughs> and that's the reality of them. He told you the truth, but he is the biggest liar. That is the shaitan. So at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to say, if you're going to tell me where it is, you're going to tell me where it is, and I'm not going to ask you to tell me where it is, because I don't need you. Alimul ghaybi wa shahada, who knows everything on the heavens and the earth, knows fine well where it is. So I'm in no need of you to tell me where it is. So... I don't, a lot of, again, I'm very different in this, a lot of people who do Rukia will say, yeah, you know, find out, go there, go here. I'm not saying don't look, but don't stop the Rukia session to go and dig up your garden because the jinn is just laughing at you and saying, hey, look at this guy, look at this guy, look, he's digging up his garden now, shall we? We'll tell him, actually, it's not in the garden, it's in the tree. Watch him climb to the top of the tree, fall out of the tree again. And the jinn are just loving it. It's just entertainment for them. Don't be so easily moved. At the end of the day, keep reading, read your own thing. If you have to reply sometimes, like they really get to you, like sometimes they just really get to you, you know, and they just really wind you up, in which case sometimes you reply with the Quran and that is sufficient bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. Um, there isn't a best time, we're still on the topic of the children, there isn't one best time to perform ruqya, but if you notice that symptoms are bad at a certain time, it's better for children, and for adults, but especially for children, that you recite on children at the time when their symptoms are worse. So for example, if they have a nightmare at 3 a.m., I would recommend that you uh, set your alarm for 2.45, you get up, pray two rakah or whatever, because whenever you get up at night, it's a good habit to be into, uh, you know, and you sit with the child and you read over them while they're having the episode, as opposed to, um, if you know the child has the episode of Maghrib every day, it's very common in Rukia problems, every day at Maghrib, read on them at that time. Because with children, the jinn, and I, I don't know why this happens, you know, I, I don't know the answer to everything, and I, I definitely don't know the answer to, you know, all the topics of Rukia, I don't know why this happens, but it seems with a lot of children that the jinn seem to distance themselves with the children at certain times, and be nearer to them at certain times. So you'll see some children who, you know, between Maghrib and Isha, they're going crazy. And every other time, there's no reaction to the Rukia at all. Now, that doesn't mean the Rukia is not benefiting. It benefits at all times, including after Isha, including after Fajr and whatever. But if you want, you know, sort of to really get to the heart of the matter, then probably you want to read on them when their symptoms are worse, if there is a particular time. But do be willing to change the time and the method, depending on progress. And, you know, don't change too quickly. One problem people have in Rukia is again that they change their opinions too quickly. They form opinions too quickly and they change their opinions too quickly. What do we mean by that? You know, you've read the ayat of magic, nothing much happened, okay, no magic here, let's go on to evil eye. You read evil eye, nothing, and you're just letting the jinn lead you in the Rukia session. Never, ever, ever let the jinn lead you. You are the one in responsible in charge of the Rukia session, you control it. Don't let the jinn tell you when to start. Don't let the jinn tell you when to stop. And definitely don't let the jinn change your symptoms from one thing to another or ideas from one thing to another and just be random. Everyone does it. You know, you start reading and the jinn says, you know, something like, you know, I'm just about to go and kill your only son or something ridiculous like that. Um, 
And at that point, what do you want to do? You get angry, you stop your Rukia, you start talking to them, and before you know, your Rukia session is gone. And all they wanted to do is just distract you and take you away from it. You control the Rukia session. You read as long as you want to read. Then when you want to address that statement from them later on, after 15 minutes or half an hour, you can stop and you can say, regarding what you said to me, this and this and this. But don't allow them to dictate to you when you start and when you stop. And don't allow them to control you and manipulate you into making certain decisions and choices. Beware your nafs has a bias and your jinn, the jinn play on that bias that is in your nafs by getting you to sort of, oh, I've changed my opinion, I've been doing Rukia 45 minutes a day for three days, didn't work, so now I've started doing it 30 minutes a day or I've started doing it like this. Don't change so quickly. Be consistent and be regular. And we mentioned this in the last episode. So now I'm going to come on to the topic of um, uh, violent jinn. And I'm not sure, I, I, I'm guessing this will be our last topic before we break for Jumu'ah because it's already... 11.34, so I'm kind of thinking that it might be our last topic. I'll, I'll let the guys from Kelima give me a shout once we've got just five minutes left. Um, how do we control a violent jinn? So, um, this might be something I mentioned in the last workshop, but I think it's appropriate here because it's a specialized thing. Most cases of jinn possession are not violent. And if you go in with your mind expecting them to be violent, the shaitan will make you scared and you will get very, very scared. And I remember whenever I feel scared, I kind of make myself go and do it. And I remember I read on a brother, lovely, lovely brother, but this brother is like, his arms are like any size of my legs, you know, he's like a massive big guy, yeah? Uh, very, very, very strong. One of those guys when he shakes your hand that he just crushes your, you know, your hand. And uh, like he tells me I've got this really big rookie problem and uh, like I'm, it's violent. So my first reaction is, no way, I'm not doing that. Yeah? <laughs> and uh, then I stopped myself and I said, no, this is wrong. This is letting the shaitan overcome my trust in Allah, it's letting the shaitan dictate to me who does and doesn't get rukia. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think of it this way, most likely the jinn are stronger than he is. But at the end of the day, it's not strength of arm or strength of muscle that is going to win you, you know, give you victory in a rukia session, but it's strength of iman and strength of sabr and so on and so forth. So I went and I read on him by, by myself on my own. And alhamdulillah, it was, it was absolutely fine. I didn't, obviously, I wouldn't go and read on him on my own if I had a choice, because I always bring a rookie partner with me whenever I can. It's just good practice to have someone with you. But uh, I went and read on him on his own, and alhamdulillah, nothing happened. Nothing at all. It was, it was, uh, the, the jinn came, you know, we had the you know, jinn stuff going on, rookie was going on, but there was no danger to me at all, and he was not you know, excessively violent. Uh, and that brings me to something that you know, is really important that you have to understand. If a Rukia patient is going to be violent, 99% of the time, they're going to be violent against themselves, not against you. Their biggest risk is to themselves. And some of you in this room know, you've been in Rukia sessions to me where we've had a violent jinn, and you've witnessed that, and you've witnessed that in general, the problem is mostly to the patient themselves. It's very rare that they're going to go for your neck. It does happen but it's very, very rare that they're going to go for your neck. Mostly, they will try to hurt themselves. So, you know, you will get 
a lot of noise when you deal with a jinn. You know, you will get, in a lot of cases, maybe 50% of cases, you'll get screaming, shouting, kicking, hitting the sofa, and you know, those kind of things. Don't worry about them. They're not, it's not violence, it's just, you know, like, it's just noise, okay? What I'm talking about is a really genuinely violent case where the person is physically willing to hurt themselves or hurt you, or hurt their family members. Uh, when you're dealing with this kind of issue, then uh, I think that the first thing you have to bear in mind is your protection comes from Allah. You know, it doesn't come from how strong you are, it doesn't come from how well prepared you are, although that has an element to it because it's an element of tawakkul, but at the end of the day, your strength comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm not a particularly strong guy, I don't win very many people in an arm wrestle, but I will quite happily wrestle somebody with a major jinn problem who is twice the size of me to the ground, no problem at all. You know, like at the end of the day, I'm not strong, I don't have any, I'm not, it's not my expertise, I can't, you know, do a lot of chin-ups or whatever it is that people do to prove that they're really strong or press-ups or whatever. But at the end of the day, you realize that it's Allah who gives you strength. And it's not you. You are not strong. Even if you come in and you're like, you know, like I can handle this, you know, I can wrestle the jinn to the ground like Umar, radiallahu an. The reality is that it was the iman of Umar and not the muscular strength of Umar. And that's what, at the end of the day, you've got to go back to your sin is your greatest danger at this time. The greatest danger that this guy is going to strangle you to death is your sin and not your lack of muscular ability to actually you know, wrestle them or whatever. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-qawi, al-mateen, the most strong, the most powerful. If he protects you, there is nobody that can harm you. And I say that to you, and I think most of you understand it, but I don't think you really witness it until you see it. You know, until you see this huge creature come and literally try to throttle you, and you're, you just go, and, the, and they fall to the ground. That is when it really hits home that it's not you. It's only from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, don't try to overpower the jinn through strength. A lot of brothers make this mistake. Not a lot of sisters make this mistake, but a lot of brothers make this mistake. They see themselves as being pretty strong and they try to out sort of wrestle the jinn. And uh, I remember something that happened to me and it was quite significant it happened to me is I, I went to read on a brother who was, had a history of being very violent towards the Raqi. So they told me before you go in, he's chewed up like three Raqis before, yeah? Like, so, before you go in, this guy has a history. I said, yalla, bismillah. So we went in, and we started reciting uh, for him, and I made a big mistake. He wrestled with me, and I thought, fine, I'll wrestle with him back. And, you know, like, at the end of the day, when you've been doing a bit of rookie, after a while, you know, like, uh, the, my, uh, this uh, rookie partner of mine is very, very good at these kind of things, like wrestling and, you know, like, uh, restraining people and whatever. So he taught me a few things, and I thought, yeah, I can, I can do it, yeah? Bismillah. And I said, Bismillah, I trusted in Allah, that it's, it's Allah, it's from Allah, I'm going to trust in Allah. And, you know, he went to get hold of my, I don't know, my arms or something, and so, you know, I did the whole, you know, t turning his body weight and all this stuff. In the end, I just got absolutely just floored by him, yeah? And then I stopped trying to out, to overpower him and started focusing only on the Quran and he became as soft as, you know, like a baby lamb. And 
he said to me afterwards, if you had carried on like that, I would have killed you. And I don't know that's true, but that's what he said to me. He said, if you had carried on like that, I would have killed you. Because you had takabur. You had pride and you thought you were powerful enough to overpower me. And when you humbled yourself and you started to focus on the Quran, I could not overpower you. And again, you know, that's coming from the shaitan. So, you know, you have to have a little bit of a caveat on that, that he's not the most truthful person. But I saw that in myself. I saw that, that I was trying the wrong way. I, I'm, I didn't feel I had a lot of pride, but I felt like I was, you know, I can do this. Bismillah, trust in Allah, I can get him on the ground. And in the end of the day, I nearly got myself in a very dangerous and difficult situation because I forgot that you don't overpower them with muscular strength. But with the Quran, and you don't, you know, it's not like your iman is so high. You know, you overpower them with the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that nothing can stand in its way. Don't just think about your own safety, but also think about the patient's safety. Again, I see this as being a major problem. Most people are thinking of themselves. You know, so what they'll do is the jinn goes violent, they run out of the room. But that poor guy is probably going, you know, and I've had, I've had people take kitchen knives and they won't take the kitchen knife on me, they'll take the kitchen knife straight for the neck. And that is the time when you're a pretty cowardly person if you run out of the room. You need to realize that that person's life is in danger and you need to deal with it in the right way. And the right way is not to grab their arm and do some sort of like crazy move. The right way is just to get near to them, get something in the way, you know, and blow and read over them until the jinn is subdued and then make a mental note not to do ruqya in the kitchen. <laughs> Again, yeah? I'm, I'm, I'm honest about it. Think where you do ruqya. You know, think what will happen if the patient falls over and bangs their head. Will they cut their head on a marble tile? Will they smash their head off a, you know, a, will they take a knife from the kitchen? Will they take a glass and throw the glass on, on your head? You know, think about it. Do ruqya in a place where it's sensible and safe. Most cases will give you no problem. Most cases will just be noise, shouting and screaming. You have nothing to worry about. Sometimes you get the odd one. I maybe get what? Violent gin? One in 30 maybe? One in 30? Very, not, not very common that I get like a really violent one. And even then, like truly violent, one in a hundred maybe. Like real, where I really feel my, you know, my life is in danger. I mean, one in a hundred maybe. Maybe more than that. Or maybe actually less than that, I should say. Don't allow the jinn to intimidate you. The jinn learn habits based on your reaction. If every time they go like that, you go like that, yeah, they will have a field day with you. They will just intimidate you. They will uh, like wind you up. They will make you scared. You put your foot down and you teach them the negative consequences of bad behavior. That means if they hit out at you, you take their hand and you blow on it for a good 10-15 minutes so that they learn, next time I do that, there's going to be a negative consequence for me. And they'll soon learn that shouting and screaming and violence don't help. Um, if you are struggling, keep some rukia water in a spray bottle. Sometimes in a, you know, like what you water plants with, it's very useful, just give them a spray in the face and that will usually calm them down, but not for everybody, but for some it will calm them down. Generally have a rukia partner. You know, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not cowardly, it's sensible. It's akhth al-asbab, doing the causes of success. Have a rukia partner who will 
be there to help you safely restrain the person. It's not that I can't restrain them. It's that I can't restrain them safely where me and them are both safe and comfortable. But with another person, I can quite comfortably manage the situation in a way that they're safe and they're comfortable. And my biggest concern is always the patient that they're going to harm themselves, punch themselves. You know, I have a lot of kids punch, be able to punch themselves in the head, hit their head off a wall, find a, a glass and try and smash the glass on their own head. Those are the things that are the biggest concern. You come last of all. You know, like at the end of the day, it's a rocky. You come last of all, and it's very rare that the gin will ever go out for you. And it doesn't hurt to learn some safe methods of comfortably restraining someone in a way that is safe for them and safe for you. It doesn't hurt that. Um, it's not perfect, but you know, at the end of the day, knowing how to safely stop a person from hitting themselves in the head is probably pretty reasonable, and it's a reasonable thing to do. You know, you're talking about sort of just, you know, get someone who knows this kind of thing, who's got a bit of experience in this, to just give you some tips on how to safely stop a person from, you know, like, uh, doing something to hurt themselves. So, you know, safely sort of just like restraining somebody or safely just holding them in their seat where they can't get up. And a friend of mine taught me a few things. And, and since then, I, I felt it helped me really in my rookie. I felt that the patient was safer because before they would run up and I would kind of rugby tackle them down to the ground. And that wasn't very safe for them because they could fall, hit their head. I could fall. Uh, a lot of things could happen. And later on, you know, he sort of told me just, you know, just keep some pressure on the shoulders on both sides. Don't let them get their body weight behind themselves and push you up. And that's a lot safer than rugby tackling somebody to the ground. So, you know, if you can learn a few small things to do to just keep it safer, then that's pretty good. If you still can't manage and you really fear for yourself, you've got no choice but to, to, to leave in the best way that you can. You know, at the end of the day, if that happens, you do your best. And at the end of the day, if you can't handle it, then at the end of the day, you know, don't put yourself in harm. So you have to, you know, you've got no choice. You have to leave. But do make dua for the patient that Allah helps them. And um, one thing I always tell people is do be extremely cautious regarding physically restraining a patient. Because in most countries, Rukia is not a recognized form of treatment. And you putting your hand on someone's head and pushing them down into the ground is probably a criminal offense and probably will get you arrested. So be careful. In some countries, Rukia is just cool. You know, in pretty much in Saudi, you can do whatever you like. Probably here in a Rukia center, you can pretty much do whatever you like. But definitely, uh, you know, definitely in somewhere like the UK, if I take someone and twist their arm behind their back, that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's, you know, whatever it is, battery or assault or something like that. So you've got to be really careful that, you know, you do things in a safe way. And most patients, if you just leave them some safe space on the carpet, they'll flap around a bit and they won't hurt anybody. You know, that's what I usually do. You know, like if I see a patient's getting a bit agitated, help them to sit down on the floor, put a pillow under their head and just let them, you know, like let them flap around on the floor a little bit and they'll be just fine, inshallah. When they stand up and say, I'm going to kill you and run at you with their arms out, that's when you need to sort of like think about some action. But when that happens, I always used to say to my rookie partner, when that has ever happened to me, it's been because of bad practice on my part. If it ever gets to the point where the guy's got his hands around my neck, then that is me not doing my job properly because I never should have allowed that situation to get to that point. He should have been safely you know, kept in a safe place. And, you know, again, some of you have seen, sometimes I do rookie and I just think, oh man, I didn't prepare that. They run for the door, they start shaking the door, and I think, ah, 
I didn't prepare that well. I should have prepared that better. I should have looked and said, where is a safe space for them to be? Where should I stand to stop them running to the door? And, or where should I stand to stop them getting to the kitchen knife? And you know, have yourself a sensible plan. The conclusion of that, before we break, is literally just that violent gin are very, very, very rare. But with a few simple steps, you can save yourself from the majority of the problems. Go with a rookie partner. Make sure you plan the event first. Make sure you don't allow it to escalate too far. You know, before it turns into a boxing match, just make sure that they're safely, you know, just gently sat down. Um, don't hurt the patient. Make sure they don't hurt themselves. And, you know, those basic points that we mentioned uh, in this little segment. So that is another sort of specialized rukia. Uh, it rarely happens, and I don't think it's a big deal. But as soon as you get yourself scared, and say, right, I'm only going to handle very small people, the reality is the gin inside of them might not be a very small person. And you might be doing rookie on a five-year-old child who just picks you up and throws you across the room. So you never know when that might happen. Be prepared and be safe, and you'll be absolutely fine, inshallah. And I can honestly say, maybe in all of this 10 years, I've had five really bad experiences. Maybe less, maybe three to five really bad experiences, but all of them have been my fault. All of them have been when I've recognized that I didn't handle the situation properly and I didn't watch and I didn't follow my own rules. So those are my, or that's my conclusion. Okay, inshallah, we're going to make a start. I apologize for getting you guys nice and early after food, but uh, I have this long, long list before I even start your questions. I have this huge long list of issues uh, to go through. I have at least 15 more slides, if you like, or issues to deal with you with before we even start with the questions. The reason I don't start with the questions first uh, is actually because I think a lot of your questions may be answered during the, uh, the presentation, inshallah. So what I want to do is, uh, is to go over a few basics again, cover some stuff, and then we can move on from there. Okay, I got a case study to wake you guys up, all right? So this case study is that a brother or a sister comes to you and says to you that we have been trying for a baby for many, many years. We've had IVF treatment. We've had, you know, been to various doctors and we've got nowhere. What do you advise us to do? Do we need Rukia? And if so, what sort of Rukia should we do? And this is my question to you. What would you advise them? Based on some of the things we've said, I'm looking for principles. I'm not really looking for the right answer, but some basic principles. Where do you start? What would you start with? Okay, go for it. Okay, start with Tawheed. Very good. I like that answer. I would start with Tawheed. What element of Tawheed would you start with as it relates to trying for a baby? If you have an answer for me, I'll take it from the same brother since you gave me such a good answer. Very good. So this is our first point, and I'm going to go to the sisters for the second point that the very, very first point is that children are a blessing from Allah. And you need to recognize that the only way you're going to be able to successfully conceive is if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses you with a child. 
And what you're doing is you're erasing and you're preparing the ground to make it fertile for the idea to spread within the person, erasing any sort of ideas that might be shirk, you know, going to any sort of funny places, doing any strange things, and so on and so forth. So the first thing is tawheed and children come from Allah. And I'll read you the first, um, the first part of my answer. The first part of my answer is to quote to them the ayah to Allah belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth. He creates whatever he wills. He gives to whom he wills female children and he gives to whom he wills males. Or he gives both males and females and he renders barren whom he wills. Indeed, he is the all-knower and the able to do all things. So the first thing you need to recognize is that Allah alone has the power to give you this. Very good. That's our first point of call. Where might we go next on the sister's side? Maybe I can ask uh, one of the Kelima volunteers just to pick one of the sisters to save me sort of looking over there. I'll ask one of the Kelima volunteers just to pick one of the sisters, inshallah. It's okay, it's okay to get it wrong now because we're only doing it as a, as a trial, as a, as a little test for ourselves. We got the first thing, Tawheed, children come from Allah, nowhere else. Very good. What's our next point? Ask them about the, they are doing the obligations like they are praying. I missed that slightly, sister. If you could repeat that to me again. We ask them uh, if they are praying five times. Very good. Really good. We start asking them about themselves. And there's a couple of elements to this. Now, I mean, it's not about probing into the person's life, but you want to find out a bit about the person and where they might be. Because the mufti, not that we are... Muftun, but the person giving the fatwa in a general sense has to know hal al-mustafti, the situation of the person who is asking the question. So is this person, from what you can see, practicing Islam? Could they potentially have gone to a magician or a fortune teller? Or have they got a ta'weez? These are all things that you will judge based on looking at them and based on asking some intelligent questions. So something like, uh, what sort of things have you done uh, before to maybe treat this? Uh, have you tried treating it through any Islamic means? That's a good generic question where they can throw up, yeah, yeah, I've been to, you know, Pir Saab and he gave me this, you know. So this is like, the, you probably don't want to say, have you been to a magician? Because they'll probably say no. But saying to them, have you been, had any Islamic treatment done? Uh, yeah, you know, I've done this. What about any family members? Have they sought treatment for you? Has your mother gone and gone to the same guy and got a ta'weed for you or something like that? So you just sort of start to find out about them and what the sister said is spot on about the praying five times a day. Uh, is the person praying? And, you know, where do you see this person is in terms of their state? Okay, so we've talked about Tawheed, Allah is the only one, and we've talked about the situation of the person and maybe looking at any sort of sins that you could correct, any issues of, you know, sort of uh, uh, issues of what you, what you might call sort of obstacles in terms of a religious sense. Um, what would you then start to advise them with? We'll go back to the brother's side. What would you then, what would your next sort of step as a Raqi be? Okay, good. So we've got sort of like this issue of tawbah coming in there. And particularly with regard to having children. We all know the statement of Nuh, فَقُلْتُ فَقُلْتُ اسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ غَفَّارًا 
يرسل السماء عليكم مدرارا ويمددكم بأموال وبنين ويجعل لكم جنات ويجعل لكم أنهارا I said to them seek forgiveness from your Lord indeed he is the ever forgiving he will send down rain from the sky in sort of or repeatedly he will send it time and time again rain down from the sky and he will give you an increase in wealth and in children so anybody who says to you wealth problem child problem straight away and this is the point i really wanted to hammer home here which is actually you know i'm i'm using this case study for a reason is that don't limit your solution to ruqya alone too many people who do ruqya the way they deal with it is their solution is someone comes and says i can't have a child okay read this drink this put this on your body and what we need to be is much more holistic than that much more wide than that talking to them about prayer about dua about getting near to allah about uh, istighfar about tauba Does anyone know a dua that you could recommend them to frequently make? The dua of which prophet? Zakaria. Wa Zakaria id nada rabbahu rabbi la tadharni fardan wa anta khayrul warithin. Fastajabna lah wa wahabna lahu Yahya wa aslihna lahu zawjah. Innahum kanu yusari'una fil khayrat wa yad'unana raghaban wa rahaba wa kanu lana khashi'in. This ayah has so many benefits from it in Surah Al-Anbiya. And I'm just going to give you a few. I really don't have time. I'm going to give you a few. Zakaria when he called out to his Lord, "My Lord, do not leave me without a child." Fardan, alone without a child, and you are the best of al-warithin, the best of the inheritors. And I put my trust in you, and the best if I pass away at the end of the day, my good deeds and my, you know, my Uh, my hopes and my dreams are all attached to you give me a child and allah says so we answered him fastajabna la and we gave him yahya and we made his wife fertile again like able to conceive again and then this is for me this is the most important part of the ayah innahum kanu yusari'una fil khayrat they used to rush to do good deeds and race each other to do good deeds wayad'unana raghaban wa rahaba and called upon us in dua in fear and hope wa kanu lana khashi'in and they were humbly submissive to us and if anyone comes to you and says to you my ruqya is not working read this ayah because wallahi this is one of the ayat that if you understand it it has the miftah the key that will open for you the door of a cure in ruqya إنهم كانوا يسارعون في الخيرات ويدعوننا رغبا ورهبا وكانوا لنا خاشعين. If you can be like this, Allah will answer you like He answered Zakaria. If you can race one another to do good deeds, if you can call upon Allah and never be negligent in your dua. What did Zakaria say in the beginning of Surah Maryam? إيهان العظم مني واشتعل الرأس شيبا ولم أكم بدعاء ولم أكم Bidu'ai Rabbi, Shaqiyya, as I came out of my mind, that he said that I have not been negligent in my du'a to you. I have not been negligent in my du'a to you. And that is how you get answered. Don't be negligent, don't be 
you know, shaqi can have a lot of, of meanings, you know, like don't be, feel wretched, hopeless, and you know, like that you have turned away from Allah. It was not like that towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all. So you see how this, you know, racing to do good deeds, calling upon Allah, having this khushu and this khashya, and being, you know, being scared of Allah and being worried about the akhirah, this is how you get a cure. And, you know, I always advise people, just look at, you know, and, and I, I have a lesson for you in all of the three du'as that are mentioned in Surah Al-Anbiya in this page, Ayyub, wa ayyuba idnada rabbahu, anni massani abdur, wa anta arhamur rahimin, fastajabana la. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about Ayyub and Ayyub when he called upon his Lord that I have been afflicted by a hardship what was the hardship Ayyub was afflicted by? he lost his children, he lost his family but, but specifically in the Quran there is a lesson for us in Ruqya he says الشيطان. The shaytan has afflicted me. The shaytan has afflicted me with this affliction, this torment. And this is an evidence that some of the scholars mentioned that the level of piety that you have does not stop you being tested as a trial from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with regard to the jinn and the shayateen. Because it happened to Ayyub and it happened to our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa when he was afflicted by the magic of Labid ibn al-A'asam. So don't feel that because of course your piety, your taqwa, your dua, all of this is a protection. But sometimes Allah will test you with something like he tested Ayyub and like he tested our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa And this is one of the evidences that just doing your adhkar and being really sort of up, you know, steadfast in terms of Islam doesn't mean that you won't sometimes have a battle with the shaitan from a place to a place or a time to a time. Allah answered Ayyub. He gave him his family and like the same number of them again as a mercy from Allah and a reminder. A reminder to the worshippers. A reminder to us, a dhikra for us, to remember what happens when you call upon Allah and when you remain patient in your situation. And then you come to the dua of Yunus. So, first of all, Yunus, he, he, he then known, he became angry and he, you know, he left in a state of sort of emotion, he got, his emotions got the better of him, he left in that state. Uh, and he thought, the meaning of he thought that we would not be able to, or we would not be able to, to, to touch him, was not that he thought ill of Allah, Abad, and this is not possible from a prophet, but that he thought he was not doing anything wrong. And he thought that it was not something Allah would punish him for. And I think this is the, the safer opinion with regard to the tafsir, so that we don't end up saying something about the Anbiya and the Rusul, which is not appropriate. So at the end of the day, he thought that he would not be punished by Allah. He thought that Allah would not punish him for leaving, because he thought that his people had rejected him, and he was the same as Nuh. You know, they, they've, they've rejected me, they've left me, and so he, he left. 
And we know the prophets are protected from the major sins. They make mistakes, small mistakes and errors of judgment in their best effort, but they don't fall into the major sins. So this was an error of judgment and not an open disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of, you know, let me just ignore everything Allah has said to me. Uh, never. Hasha wa kalla. This cannot be from a prophet. So he went out, he, he thought that he would not be taken to account for it. And then he called out when he was thrown into the sea and he was swallowed by the fish. He called out in the darkness, La ilaha illa anta subhanak, inni kuntu min al There is no God worthy of worship but you, subhanaka, you are free of all imperfections. Indeed, I have been oppressive or from the oppressors. And what did Allah say? And this is the key thing that we sometimes remember the dua, but we don't remember what Allah said. Allah said, Fastajabanala, we answered him. And we saved him from his sadness. And for me, this last part is the key. And we promise to save every believer who does the same. A promise from Allah that he will save you if you do the same. So for sure, it's about dua, general supplications, dua of Zakariyah, I've got that in my list. So I, I mean, I've got take yourself to account, seek forgiveness from Allah, Focus on prayers and daily remembrance. Supplicate with both general supplications, like la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al and specific supplications like the dua of Zakaria, Rabbi la tadharni fardan wa anta khayru warithin. And observe the etiquette of dua. What else from the non-Ruqya side might you want to advise them? From the non-Rukhiya side, before we even get to Rukhiya, I've got two more points. Okay, charity, very good. I mean, basic principle, the Prophet said, Treat your sick people with charity. So for sure, charity is, is something you, would, you can advise people to do, these general good deeds and generally increasing in obedience to Allah. Is there anything with regard to children specifically outside of Rukhiya that you might want to advise them? Yeah, that's possible. Like that's on the, on, the, on the medical side, going down the medical route, definitely. That is possible. You can make dua for someone who's having similar kind of problem. Okay, that's another point. You can make dua on the topic of dua. You can make dua for someone uh, who's having a similar problem that the angel says, Amin, and to, and to you. These are all completely valid. The, I'll tell you the couple that I had left, and I apologize to the sisters, sometimes I get caught up in... You know, say to the you, you, and then I forget about the sisters. So, follow the proper etiquette of marital intimacy. This is one that I had on the list. Because at the end of the day, what do you say, you know, when a, a person is intimate with their wife, so they say that, oh Allah, keep the shaitan away from us. Allahumma jannibna shaitan. Wa jannib shaitan ma razaqtana. What does that tell you about people who don't observe that etiquette? If you're in that etiquette of saying, Oh Allah, keep shaitan away from me and keep shaitan away from what you provide us, what might happen if you don't make that dua? By mafhum al-mukhalafa, the shaitan comes near to you and the shaitan starts causing you problems for you and your children. So definitely the proper etiquettes in terms of not doing anything haram, uh, in terms of making that particular dhikr uh, and so on and so forth, that's very, very important because the sunnah brings barakah. And the other thing that I had on my list, and it's not an exhaustive list, is great or gratitude to Allah and having the intention for being grateful. Because you remember the story in the Quran, 
of the, those two that were hoping for a child and they were, you know, they were praying for a child and then when Allah gave them the child, they made for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala partners in that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had gave them. Uh, and I, I'm trying to remember the surah off the top of my head, but in any case, this is a clear proof that you have to be grateful and have an intention to be grateful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, La in shakartum, azidannakum. If you are grateful, I will give you more. So these are just a few points before we even get into Rukia. Because I always tell the brothers and the sisters, if your job is just to read people on people, you're nothing more than a glorified MP3 player. That is basically what you are. And that's not what I want you to be. I want you to be du'at. I want you to be calling people to the good. If you see the person's not praying, how can you read on them and then just let them go and not pray? Give them the advice. Start them to pray. Start them to get near to Allah. Let them consider the holistic problem and not only Rukia. Then when we got to Rukia, first thing I said is the means of protection. So I usually start with people, before you even start Rukia, start protecting yourself. So I have a long article called How to Protect Myself, or How Do I Protect Myself, including adhkar, abandoning sins, following the sunnah, all of these type of things. And then talking about start with the seven-day Rukia program, try that for a little while. If you do it once a month and things are not improving within two, three months, maybe go on to the full Rukia program and see if we are seeing any change in you or any symptoms that might make us think that it's not a natural cause. And this pretty much exact program I sent, I've sent to more than one couple and I found that it, it, you know, in general it seems, to be, it seems to be doing the job, it seems to be working, alhamdulillah, that people are, you know, you give people more than just Rukia. And that's what I really wanted to teach you. It's not so much the answer to this question but as much as the principle of give them more than Rukia. If you just give them Rukia, you're really limiting yourself and you're really limiting them. And what will make, how do you know the problem is from the jinn and the shaitan? What makes you think that the problem might not be, for example, from their sins or their disobedience to Allah? Or their problem might not be one of a lack of sabr? Or their problem might not be, for example, um, you know, any of the other issues that we mentioned, a lack of following the sunnah and etiquettes when it comes to marriage? There are lots and lots of reasons. So while there are lots and lots of reasons, don't give someone one treatment for one reason. Give them the whole spectrum of treatment. From tawbah, educate them how to make tawbah, to educating them how to trust in Allah, to educating them as to how to live as husband and wife, a good book on marital etiquettes and marital sort of intimacies, there's some good literature you can give them that will help them to understand that. Likewise, on the topic of Rukia, and you give them the whole thing. Why? Because basically, if you cover all of your bases, the cure will come from here, or from here, or from here, or from here. But you're giving them everything. Whereas when you give them just Rukia, Rukia is an amazing thing, and it's a comprehensive cure for everything. But you are neglecting the possibility that this is coming from sins, a lack of istighfar, and so on and so forth. So now, when I come to tell you, and I'll just sort of give you an idea, what I tend to tell people about uh, things like financial problems. So the same thing and the same method applies when it comes to financial issues. This is my most common query, I must admit. I think at the moment, in the last year or so, my most common query is probably, or one of my most common queries is, I'm 
I lost my job. I've lost everything. I can't make any money, or I can't get married, or I can't like like sort of financial and life problems. Not people saying I twitch at night, or I float through the air, or I you know I have like nightmares, or I you know I faint when I hear the Quran. Most people are saying things like job problems, money problems, business problems, and Uh, you know, marriage problems and whatever. And again, I follow the same methodology. Do not discount Rukia because it may well be the evil eye. You know what the Prophet said: how much he emphasized the evil eye, and how much the evil eye will afflict, afflict so many people of this ummah to the extent that perhaps the majority of the people who will be afflicted with something will be afflicted by the evil eye, or the evil eye will be a component. So you can't ignore that, but at the same time, there are lots and lots of reasons why a person might find themselves in financial difficulty, and that can range from it being a a test of their sabr, a sin that they have done, haram earnings, uh, things like uh, oppression towards other people, and there's a you know there's a beautiful. Uh, Uh, lecture series that I give to everybody who comes to me with this problem. Pretty much, I give them this lecture series by our Sheikh Zafar Al Hassan, Hafizahullah Taala, uh, in the Urdu language. But it has a trans, it has a, a brief set of notes available in English, called "Means to Increase Your Earnings" or something like that. And I think Kelly Ma has the DVD outside. But why do I give this to people if I think it's a rookie problem? Because imagine you hit this from multiple angles. The person starts. Repenting to Allah, they start purifying their wealth. They start looking at their amana and whether they are fulfilling it. They start looking at their truthfulness. They start looking at things like whether they are stingy, whether they are giving sadaqa. They start looking at you know things like the source of their income and how they spend it. They start looking at their du'a. They start looking at their trust in Allah, and soon enough, you have this huge sort of spectrum of activity of which rukia is one part of it. And that way, you're pretty much hitting the problem from every possible angle. So I tend to, I have like, I, I summarize the notes of the sheikh on a on a, a sheet of paper, uh, and basically I tend to go through it and say, right, let's look at this issue. Let's look at your amanat. Are you fulfilling your amanat to the people, or are you losing the amanat so Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has tried you in your wealth? For example, what about your prayers? What about your honesty? What about istighfar? فَقُلْتُ اسْتَغْفِرُ رَبَّكُمْ the same ayah that we mentioned before because Allah subhanahu wa taala says وَيُمْ دِدُكُمْ بِأَمْوَالٍ وَبَنِينَ with wealth and children and all of the other ayat and the ahadith that mention wealth about being good to your parents your risk being dependent on بِرُ الْوَالِدِينَ and all of these aspects that we look at and we get we try to deliver for a person a, a holistic solution to the problem and sometimes people don't like it. You know, I'll be honest. Sometimes people are like, "Look, I, I just want the rukia." You know, like just read on me. But the reality is that what you're doing is you're trying to do a number of things. Number one, let's just presume it is a rukia problem. And some of them come and it's clearly a rukia problem. They have an instant reaction to the Quran, and they have terrible business and problems and whatever. What we always tell them is that by dealing with this from the point of view of risk and increasing it and removing the obstacles. You are removing the hold the shaitan has in you to be able to make this magic or this uh, jinn possession or this evil eye effective. 
it's only effective while it has a hold on you. And while you're removing this, you're becoming like a smooth you know, stone or piece of glass. Everything is just falling off. And so the shaitan isn't able to affect. Remember, the shaitan doesn't control your risk. Your risk is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's the first thing we tell everybody. Just like we tell people that Allah is the one who gives you children, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that gives you risk. And don't ever think the shaitan can withhold your risk. Abadan. How can the shaitan withhold your risk when Allah is ar-razzaq? It's not possible. Rather, the shaitan is allowed for a wisdom to give you a limited trial for a time as a wisdom from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are means and ways to get out of that problem. So what I would like to see somebody who's suffering financially doing is start looking from an Islamic learning perspective on the means for your risk to go up and the means for your risk to be blocked. What can block your risk like lying and being untrustworthy and dishonest or not having amana or being stingy or not helping the poor or you know like other sort of what can stop it you know or you know uquq al-walidain being bad to your your parents then what reverse wise can increase it and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said walaw anna ahl al-qura amanu wa attaqaw la fatahna alayhim barakatin min as-sama'i wal-ard if the people of the towns believed in Allah and had taqwa, they did the right things and avoided the wrong things, we would open for them the barakah of the heavens and the earth. That's a promise from Allah. Allah didn't say, didn't say accept those who are afflicted by magic or accept those who are afflicted by the jinn. Allah promised you, if you believe and have taqwa, He will open for you the barakat of the heavens and the earth. That's a promise from Allah. Allah doesn't break His promise. So we start on that side and then we give them a treatment for the ruqya as well. So we start with maybe them doing, you know, and, and again, you know, one of the brothers raised a really good point with me before. He said, where did you get this 45 minutes from? You know, is this from the sunnah? And we said, no, it's not, it's not at all from the sunnah. And you're welcome to do 50 or 30 or anything else. Why do I say 45 minutes? I'm looking for something people can do. You know my Sheikh, Sheikh Ali, he tells them to read Surah Al-Baqarah twice a day, sometimes three times a day. Sometimes if I phone him and complain about a case, he will say to me, are you reading Al-Baqarah three times a day? I say, Sheikh, no. He'll say, it's not enough. Read Al-Baqarah three times a day, inshallah, you'll find the, the cure. So subhanAllah, at the end of the day, I also recognize that, you know, we are weak. وَخُلِقَ الْإِنسَانُ ضَعِيفَ Man was created weak. And if you give people on the first day something they can't handle, like you say to them, right, you'll get rid of your financial problems if you read Surah Al-Baqarah every single day, twice a day, along with your 45 minutes, along with, along with, along with, and people will not be able to do it, then they'll become depressed and they'll start saying, there's no cure for me, there's no risk for me. You know, I'm just doomed to be like this forever. So give people what is easy. The Prophet ﷺ said, yassiru wa la Yassiru wa la Make things easy for people, don't make things difficult. So I chose 45 minutes, an arbitrary number. Uh, I chose it because it's enough to get the job done, inshallah, but it's little enough that most people can do it. It's a psychological thing. If I said an hour, people would be like, an hour? I don't have an hour. You know? And if I said to people 20 minutes, you know, they might do 10 minutes and stop. But you know, 45 minutes out of pure experience seems to be about the right sort of um, sort of uh, amount for people to be able to 
get enough ruqya done to actually make an effective change with the permission of Allah and at the same time not, uh, you know, not be burdening themselves with what they can't do. And likewise, you know, I saw, for example, Sheikh Adil uh, when I met him. And I was just thinking, I probably met Sheikh Adil before the Abu Ibrahim talk. But anyways, when I met Sheikh Adil, I asked him what adhkar he gives people for protection. And he only gives people a handful. And I was like, Sheikh, why don't you give them, like, for example, Hisnul Muslim? And tell them to read the adhkar of Sabah and Masa. He's like, they won't do it. And that's true. That's really, really true. If you gave them Hisnul Muslim and said, read this every morning, Wallahi, how many of you, and I, and I believe there are some of you, but I don't believe that all of us in this room read Hisn al-Muslim, Adhkar sabah wal masa every single morning and every single afternoon after Asr without fail. So have at least a handful of du'as that you never miss and dhikr that you never miss. You know, like certain, I don't know, Bismillah al-Ladhi la yadurru, ma'asmihi shay'un fil ardi wa la fil sama wa huwa samir alim. These kind of small things that you never ever miss ever. And then build up until you're reading Hisn al-Muslim every morning and every afternoon. Inshallah, there's a lot, of, a lot of good in that. So sometimes what I say to people is I give them the 45 minutes knowing that they really need Surat al-Baqarah every day. Knowing that they need probably Surat al-Baqarah twice a day. But I give it to them that let's establish a, a basic principle of Rukya. Then let's ratchet it up. When they come back to me and say three months, I've been doing your 45 minutes strictly. I haven't missed it. I've been doing it with my heart and I'm not getting better. Then I say, okay, now you need to read Surah Al-Baqarah every day. Because you bring them up in stages, tadarruj, stages and steps. You don't bring them up in, you know, you don't tell them to just jump to the top of the mountain. You tell them to go up in, in steps. And that leads me to another point. So on top of the so, so financial side, I give them the regular ruqya. I don't give them anything specific, but I give them du'a for improving their risk in terms of the du'as that, you know, I've got this website that I helped to make, which is du'as.com, D-U-A-S.com. And um, that has a lot of authentic du'as on there. You know, for example, uh, this, uh, this du'a, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazan wa'udhu bika min al-bukhli aw min al-ajzi wal-kasal wa'udhu bika min al-bukhli wal-jubun وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ مِنْ ضَلَعِ الدَّيْنِ وَقَهْرِ الرِّجَالِ وَمِنْ ضَلَعِ الدَّيْنِ وَغَلَبَتِ الرِّجَالِ So this is a, a dua advised by the Prophet ﷺ for someone who is in debt. And he said that if you say this dua, your debt will be paid. So uh, subhanAllah, you know, there are certain duas that we also give them, but we don't give them any specific ayat. I don't anyway. I don't tell them, you know, read like, for example, keep reading over and over again. Um, you know, for example, I don't know... Um, something to do with Allah being al-ghani, who al-ghani, or something like that. Or I, don't, I don't give them this. I give them the regular Rukia program, I give them dua, and I give them a lot of advice on how to increase their risk and how to stop the causes for your risk being decreased. And I think we could apply this to many cases. I won't have time to tell you them all, but many, many situations when you look at it, it's not a Rukia problem alone. It's a Rukia problem and a dua problem and a obstacles problem and a you know sins problem and lots of other things so give them the whole solution don't just give them 
one thing. Give them a holistic solution. Go search. You know, if you don't know it, go search ways to increase your wealth. Go search, you know, on Google, do a little search on, you know, Islamic articles on means to increase your wealth and from reliable sources, etc. And, you know, reasons why your du'a is not answered and all of these different things. And then present them the whole thing in small chunks that they can do because you have to give them to darruj. You have to take them, you know, step by step. You have to take them uh, piece uh, by piece. What you can't do is you can't give them everything in one go. Otherwise, if you give them everything in one go, they'll lose it in one go. And Allah Azza wa Jal said about the Quran that we, that we sent down, or that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down the Quran in, uh, in stages. And Allah said that this is better to make your, to, or this is how we make your heart firm. We make your heart firm. And that's a general principle in teaching that you make people firm when you teach them in stages and you teach them in pieces. There's another principle that I think is really important, and I think this is a key to um, the issue of when Rukia doesn't seem to be working. Okay? And I've mentioned this, I think, in my overcoming Rukia problems, and I mentioned a long thing about, you know, at the end of the day, you have to have sabr, you have to know that it's from Allah. The Prophet ﷺ did not receive victory in a day or in two days. His victory took him, you know, over 20 years before he had victory for over his enemies in every regard, at the end of the day, you shouldn't expect your victory to come in a day or a week or a month. Having said that, there is one mistake I see a lot of people making in self-Rukia particularly, and that is not pushing the boundaries. And I've mentioned it before, but I really want to emphasize this. Most people, when they do Rukia, they do it up to a limit that they are comfortable with. And the Raqi is the same. So the Raqi goes in, you know, does kul bil falaq until, you know, like, it feels a bit like, oh, I can't do anymore, and then stops. And what we don't do is we don't push the boundary. What you have to do is constantly push yourself to do a little bit more and a little, push yourself a little bit harder. And some people, particularly, you get some cases where the person will say, I can't read. I read alhamd and I faint. And I say to them, that's absolutely fine. All I want you to do is to slowly increase the amount as best you can. So you, you know, in the beginning you say, and that's it. Then you say, Bismillah, and then you faint. Then you wake up and you say, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, and then you faint. And then you wake up and you say, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, and then you think, and you're pushing yourself all the time to just do a little bit more. It doesn't matter how much you're doing in the grand scheme of things, but it matters massively that you're pushing yourself. Because the shaitan, uh, how, do I, how do I explain this? The shaitan has a level at which the shaitan becomes very, very uncomfortable. And it's like anything, it's like exercise, like anything. You know, when you push yourself, it's that last 5% when you push yourself that makes all the difference. So, you know, you get someone going to the gym and, you know, they start lifting weights and they only lift what they can manage easily. And then what happens is they don't, you know, they don't see anything as getting better, but it's that last 5 or 10% that matters. Rukia is really, this is so applicable to Rukia, that it's the last... 5-10% that you push yourself beyond what you thought you could do, that's when you get the biggest results. And if I see people who do Rukia who are really, really successful, one of the things I see in their Rukia is they push it. So they get to a point where the person can't take any more 
and then they push it beyond that point and they take it beyond that point. So it's the point where the person screaming, it's a stop, I can't do it, I'm tired, my head is hurting, I can't read anymore, and they still read another 10 minutes. And that 10 minutes appears to me, and Allah knows best, to be where the greatest effect is taking place. Because basically, shaitan pushes back against you. This is what I was trying to say. You push against the shaitan with Rukia, and the shaitan pushes back. There gets to a point where the shaitan reaches a peak of pushing against you because it's so painful to that shaitan and that shaitan is pushing, pushing, pushing back against you that what you tend to do at that point is just before you get to the peak, you stop because it's unbearable. If you can get over that peak, that is when you get the best results out of the ruqya. So you want to push yourself all the time a little bit more keep a record with a patient and always try and give them that little bit more, that little bit more intense, that little bit more recitation, that little bit longer keeping them awake before they faint, that little bit more of them reciting themselves, that little bit longer of, you know, like managing to control their anger or their reaction or whatever it is. You're just trying to get a little bit more every time. And what you find these tiny increments add up to massively, massively improved results in Rukia. I've seen this a lot of times, I've seen it not with myself, but with a lot of other people who do Rukia that I have a lot of respect for, that when I see them pushing the patient and pushing themselves, and you know one thing I do when I go into my Rukia session, I go in with a target of what I'm going to read. And I never ever go in just saying I'm just going to read. Because if I'm just going to read, Shaitan is going to get in my head and say to me, that's enough. And I'll just finish with you know, Fatiha and Ayat al-Kursi and the Quls and that's it, I'm going to finish. So what I do is I go in and say, I'm going to read for a minimum of 45 minutes. I'm going to read for a minimum of 45 minutes and I don't ever go under that. If, you know, the house is on fire or whatever, 45 minutes. And then try to push myself, the next stage is try to push myself beyond that to always do five minutes more. To always for that patient to always try and be a little bit more intense, less talking at the beginning. Because you know, you get in a rookie session, you start, How are you? How are you last week? How are things? And then before you know it, half an hour is gone and you've got 15 minutes left. So, what we tend to do is, you know, try and always pushing ourselves to just be that little bit better. I found that that is one of the major reasons for uh, success in, uh, in rookie. One of the other things that I definitely wanted to talk about in this is. Uh, self-adjustment of Rukia. This is a very similar topic. So this is the topic of adjusting your Rukia according to your sort of how you're monitoring yourself. Now you can do it a wrong way which is that every time the Shaitan shouts you change your Rukia. That's wrong. But sensible adjustments over time are, are very sensible. So for example you've been doing Rukia 45 minutes a day uh, for the last month and you've seen an improvement but you still feel like you have quite a long way to go it might be very sensible to, to, to up that to an hour for example not just in time you can also up it in intensity as well in terms of really focusing more working on you know sort of drinking water rookie water while you're going while you're doing it so you can increase it in intensity you can also increase it in time you can also increase in sort of, you know, the variation of the surahs you're reading and so on and so forth. But what we really want people to do is adjust it. So as a Raqli, you're always looking at things over a long period of time. Don't look over a short period because a short period gives you false results and you get a bit, you know, you, get, you start doing things because the shaitan wants you to do things. But over a longer period, you start looking at yourself and saying, well, is my Rukia enough? 
is 45 minutes enough? Well, maybe not. You know, it's, I, I need to up this. I'm reading Al-Baqarah now once a week. I need to make this once every two weeks. And you're pushing yourself and adjusting your ruqya according to how you see yourself or the patient is doing over a long period of time and what you think might be missing. And another thing I always advise people to do is to always take themselves to account when it comes to ruqya and just go back to the basics and say, right, am I doing everything right? Am I reading what I should be reading? Am I doing this? Am I just go, I use my own website as a checklist. I go through my own website and say, am I doing this? Am I doing this? Am I doing this? Am I doing this? So that I have an idea and a concept in my mind that I know that I'm, I've gone back to basics. And this is really important when you get the horrible case study where someone comes and says, I've done everything and nothing's working. Now, if you're a doctor, you might say the medication's wrong, we need to change your medication. But as a Muslim reading Quran, you know the Quran is the right medication. So you need to go right back to the beginning and say, right, zero, reset to zero. Let's begin again. Tawbah, ikhlas, niya, sunnah. Let's start again. Step one, step two, step three, step four. And very often, when you make dua for Allah to open up your mind to see what the problem is, your mind will be opened and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will show you where your flaw is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will show you. And there's no specific dua for that. There's nothing like, oh Allah, you know, show me this particular flaw. But whatever dua you make, you ask Allah that he is al-Fattah, he is al-Jabbar, that show me where my weakness is, inspire me to get rid of my weakness and help me to get rid of my weakness. And what you often find is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens up the door for you. When you feel like you're really stuck, follow the example of the Prophet and pray two rakah. When the Prophet would become troubled by a matter, he would go to the prayer, go and pray two rakah and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to open up, you know, say to him that he is al-Fatah, al-Fatah, open up a door for me, open up a way for me, let me see where you know, where am I going wrong? And you keep on pushing, you keep on adjusting, and you keep on analyzing and checking yourself. Those three go together. I think they're absolutely critical, whether you're doing self-rukia or rukia for other people. Keep on sort of pushing yourself. Keep on adjusting what you're doing. And most importantly, keep on checking yourself. And don't be frightened to just go back to basics reset especially if you feel like the world is just spinning and you just don't have any clue what's going on okay you know it's like you know when we have these problems you have problems at work you know if you're you know you work in something and your you know your machinery you're fixing at work doesn't work you know often what you do is you just zero yourself just go back to zero okay is it plugged in is it switched on is you know the 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 on button pressed is like you do these basic checks and it doesn't hurt to do them in Rukia as well. Am I doing this? Am I doing this? Where might I be going wrong? So I think those are some quite fundamental uh, principles. Uh, and uh, there are a couple or three more sort of generic principles I want to talk to you about. Um, I'm going as quick as I can. One of them is whenever you talk to people about trusting in Allah, you need to tell them the essence of tawakkul. And the essence of tawakkul is do your best and leave the rest to Allah. That is your, the essence of tawakkul. And what you get is, you get people who, fit, who fall on either side of that. Either they are doing their best, but they're not trusting in Allah. I mean, they think that they are the only cause. Look, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm not getting better. Okay. But you're reading and trusting that Allah is going to cure you. 
or you're just reading and saying, I've read two pages, why haven't I been cured? On the other side, you have people who trust in Allah, a false trust, and they don't try their best. And those people are also guilty. So what you want to look at for your patients is whenever you're telling them, like we said in the financial issue, like we said in the issue of trying for a baby, that you're telling them about tawakkul and trust in Allah, then what you're trying to do is, you're trying to see where they might be imbalanced. Are they trying really hard, but not letting go? You know, they're trying really, really hard, but they're not letting go. They're not doing tafweed al-amr ilallah. Letting, just letting go of everything and leaving it to Allah. Or are they, on the other side, leaving everything to Allah, but not doing anything? And so you want to bring them into the point where they try their absolute best, and they're literally, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, everything they can to get it done. And at the same time, they have a confidence and they have a trust that Allah will deliver them and Allah will take them out of the problem that they're in. Uh, another one that I wanted to talk about very specifically is the topic of general and targeted ruqya. So during the ruqya session, one of the things that you, you see during the ruqya session is you see various parts of the body being affected. So you might see a person affected in their arm. So their arm starts, you know, going like this, or their finger just goes like this, or their face twists, or their head, or, you know, some really weird things happen, like their face can turn into someone else, and all sorts of strange things. But you see a particular part of the body being affected. You have a general rukia, and you can also target your ruqya to a specific place. And there are lots of ways to do this. This is really a bit like a slightly more advanced topic of targeting your ruqya. So general ruqya, you're sitting there, you're reading and you're blowing. You're reading, you're blowing, you're reading, you're blowing. Targeted ruqya, you've got a couple of options. One thing that you can do is to focus your reading on the area which seems to be affected. Now you can have some complex problems in there, you can have lot, multiple jinn and some other things, but just, you know, trying to give some focus to the area. So if it's the hand that's going like this, you can take hold of the hand, obviously if it's a sister she has to be a mahram, otherwise tell her mahram to take hold of her hand, and you can focus on the hand. And you might see a reaction, you might see the hand go down and the other hand go up. Focus on the hand. Chase the shaitan around the body. Don't let the shaitan get comfortable and sit in one place. Sometimes the patient will tell you, it's in my head. You know, I can f it's in the back of my head and my head is heavy and like this. So you can put your hand on the back of the head. You can blow in your hand, touch your hand. You can touch your hand to the place of pain. You can read the dua for pain. You can read ruqya with your hand on that place. Again, if the sister is not a mahram, you will ask the mahram to do that. Instead of you blow on the mahram's hand and let the mahram put their hand on the lady instead, inshallah, um, and so on and so forth. If you don't have a mahram there, but you have another sister, then you just, you know, you keep away. You keep away and just do your generic ruqya. You know, but you're targeting that particular place with reading, or you're targeting that particular place with touching, by touching your hand on that particular place where you can often feel the jinn. You know, sometimes you can even catch them. You know, you can even catch, catch them in a certain place where they stay there and they're kind of like going crazy, the hand is going crazy, you know, it's like shaking backwards and forwards and you've just caught them in a particular place knowing that they travel through the blood, you can just catch them in a particular place and focus your reading on that particular area. 
One thing you can do is, I, I really dislike hitting, as I said, but what I do like is targeted massage. I think it works almost as well as hitting, and it saves you from so many problems that hitting gives you. So this is to, for example, take the place where the gin is causing the most problem and just give it some pressure, give it a gentle massage, and this is very, very painful. You can see the gin is really hurting, but the best bit about it is if you get it wrong, the person is not hurting. Hitting, if you get it wrong, the person's going to get hurt. Massaging, if you get it wrong, the person is not going to get hurt. And someone might say, well, it's better, it's more powerful if you hit the gin, but the downsides are too great, the risk is too high, versus the, the sort of targeted pressure or massage where you're just sort of like targeting the area where the gin is, giving it a hard time, blowing, putting some pressure, putting some massage, following it around, it goes into the shoulder, getting the shoulder, and again, you know, targeting that area, blowing on that area, focusing your reading on that area. The other thing you can do is to target it using, for example, water or olive oil. So if you see in a certain place, especially with the sisters, this works also very well. If you can't go near to her, then maybe you have a little bit of a spray can and you can, you know, with her permission prior to the Rukia session, you can just spray some, you know, Rukia water over in the direction of the area which is being afflicted. Um, or you could even better than that, which is even better, is you have a sister in there who is your assistant who is like kind of taking care of the sister, you don't even need to look at her and she can see it's in the hand and she just, you know, sprays a little bit of the water or gives her a little bit of a massage on her hand and then suddenly what you're seeing is you're, you're putting so much more pressure on the gin. Instead of just letting the gin go and have a free reign and just zip around the body, you're stopping it, you're pushing it, you're pressurizing it, you're giving it some pain, you know, like I sometimes do, you know, there are different kinds of massage. I mean, you can, you can give it a little, you know, like, a little like this, a little tap, you can give it a squeeze, as long as it wouldn't hurt the person, as long as the person wouldn't object to it when they were awake, and it's no, it's no big deal, you know, this is a good replacement for beating somebody. It's not as satisfying, but it's a good replacement for beating somebody, okay? Like, so, you just, you know, give them a tap, give them a pressure, you know, give, just give them a massage, and, and really just try and catch the gin in a particular place. If it doesn't, it's not clear to you where the gin is, don't do it, you know, just keep with your general rukia. What happens if it's inside? It's in my stomach. This person's stomach bloats up like a massive big, you know, beach ball. Yeah, and like it's getting bigger and bigger and you're thinking they're just gonna pop. Again, look at what you can do to target that area from the outside and the inside. From the inside, rukia water. Or spray down their throat. Uh, rukia water's nicer, but sometimes they won't take it. Like quite a lot, you'll give it to them, they'll just spit it at you, you know, like, so sometimes having a little spray and just gently spraying the water down their throat and every now and again, sometimes I'll hold their nose if they're really like not taking it, you know, until they open their mouth and then just you know, a little bit, but you've got to be careful about that because it's kind of illegal in some countries. So, you know, sometimes you just nip their nose or whatever and just, and they open their mouth and then you just give them a little bit of rukia water, it's going into the stomach. But then target from the outside, hand on the stomach, blow on the hand, you know, touch the hand, the du'a for pay, and you're just targeting it wherever it's going. And I think this is one of the ways you can make your rukia a lot more effective and a lot more powerful in, a sh in the same space of time, is by really being awake and attuned to what's happening and really following the shaitan and not giving the shaitan any peace of mind. 
I also do that with myself. So if I feel, and you know, people are always shocked, the, the, big, the most shocking thing that I ever seem to get emails about is whenever I say that I had a problem with the gin or some like, issue happened to me, people email me and say, you know, like, I've sh it shook my faith in, you know, like, in whatever, because you know, you're not supposed to get these problems. Why? You know, subhanAllah, like, uh, I sin like the rest of you, you know, at the end of the day. And I forget my adhkar, and I sometimes don't do what I should do, and sometimes it's a test from Allah Azawajal. And like I said, you never met a tandoori chef who didn't burn his fingers. So you never also met a raqi that sometimes didn't get an affliction from time to time. But if I feel while I'm reading on someone, I'm getting a pain, I'm also not going to give the shaitan any, any free time. I'm going to get my on myself, start blowing, start holding, start, you know, start rubbing on here, start reading on myself, because that shaitan is coming from that other person, and we don't want to give them any peace at all. We want to make it so uncomfortable for them, and so difficult for them, that they are pressured to leave much more quickly. And you know, it's like this. It's like you, there are lots of ways to defeat your enemy. If you are just, you know, striking your enemy every now and again, it's going to take a long time. If you're putting so much pressure that the shaitan can't turn left or right without getting hit by water, rukia, oil, your hand, something is coming in somewhere, everywhere, the shaitan tries to hide in the foot, you're there. Tries to hide in the hand, you're there. Tries to get in the stomach, you're there. What happens is the rukia becomes a lot, lot more powerful and a lot more effective in a shorter space of time. It's a lot more intense for the person and that matches our concept of increasing intensity. Uh, you know, uh, on that topic, or we'll first uh, deal with a slightly different topic uh, when we talk about the topic of, um, of, or actually we'll move on, yeah, we'll move on to the topic of the house because this leads us on to the topic of the house quite well. The, a lot of people have problems in their homes, in their houses, and they believe that the problem is not with them. And I agree that is possible. Uh, first kind of note I would give you is don't presume. Don't presume they don't have a problem because people say, you know, people come to you and say, yeah, my house is infested with gin. They open the wardrobes, throw the pans around, switch the lights on, open the windows, and I'm terrified, my kids are terrified, etc., etc. Don't presume that it's only in the house and it's not with the person. Check. Do rukia on them outside of the house. Give yourself a good idea whether you think they are also afflicted. Many times, not always, but let's say 30-40% of the time, they will also have an affliction, and their affliction may be the primary reason. So you're saying like, you give them the advice for reading in the house, and they go and do it, but then they're not getting any better, and you realize the reason they're not getting any better is the affliction is also within them, and not just within the house. So how do you deal with the house? apart from dealing with the person and doing rukya on the person, which is very valid. You know, how do you deal with the house? One of the things that's vital on the non-rukya side is purifying the house of those things which cause the angels not to enter the house and cause the shaitan to enter the house. Many times we've said to people, some people hang out a flag on their wall that says, Marhaban bishayateen, welcome shaitan. Because literally their house is full of things which bring the shaitan. Now that doesn't have to be just TV and music, although TV and music are definitely at the top of the list along with pictures, and I'm really strict on pictures, I'm, I'm stricter maybe than we, I don't know, am I stricter than we need to be, but I'm super strict on this. 
Um, I cover all pictures in the house, whether they are like in kids' books or anything else, kids' toys, I cover them all. The only thing I allow my daughter is a, a rough, like roughly sort of rag doll made out of material uh, based on the hadith of Aisha and nothing else. And I'm super strict about going through my house and removing pictures, you know, with paint pens, with markers, with scissors, with Stanley knives, with sandpaper, you name it, you know, like, you know, I had a Dremel multi-tool for a while that I used to scrape the things off. I'm really obsessive about getting rid of pictures, but at least, at least you should be, you know, starting that process of getting rid of pictures of living things, faces. If you've got nice photographs, scan them, keep them on the computer where they're not on display. Don't put them in a drawer, don't put them in a cupboard. Get rid of the pictures in your house. Get rid of the TV. Because you might say, I only watch Quran channel or whatever the thing is, but if that's true, then that's a blessing from Allah that has lasted until now, but you have no guarantee it will not last until tomorrow. Because I don't think it's possible to only get that channel. It's always possible to flick and get another channel. Get rid of the TV. TV goes. You got gin in your house, you don't have gin in your house, whatever. Get rid of the TV. Music. Again, some people will say, well, it's not in my control. It's my mom, it's my dad. Fear Allah as much as you can. If you only do it from your room and that's all you can control, that's all you can control. But not just those things. Also, the behavior of the people in the house. So things like not praying in the house. The Prophet said, don't make your houses like graveyards. You know, don't, don't make it that you don't, nobody prays in the house. Pray your sunnah if you're a man, if you're a lady, pray your fard in the house. Uh, about arguments and marital discord and people swearing by Allah too much and saying bad language and things that draw the shaitan, anger, you know that you go in some houses and there's a feeling of just anger in the air, you know everybody's angry with everyone and the shaitan can cause that but at the same time they have to do their best effort to reduce that characteristic within themselves and that's going to lead me to another point which I'm going to make in just a moment. Uh, but you need to remove things which displease Allah and put things in that please Allah. Because we have a principle, I've talked about it I think in Bulugh al-Maram, the Prophet Sallallahu mentioned regarding the Qibla, وَلَكِنْ أَوْ غَرِّبُوا Turn to the east or turn to the west. And that's a principle of when you take something away from someone and say don't do this, give them an alternative. Get rid of the music, replace it with Qur'an poetry, durus, uh, podcasts, whatever it takes, anything that doesn't have music in, do that. Step number two, TV, don't just, you know, get rid of the TV and have nothing, you know, like either cut your satellite connection or your whatever and just connect something to it where you can watch beneficial things or whatever, replace it again with reading Quran, with sitting together, having a meal together as a family instead of having the TV on and all sitting around the TV, like sitting on a dining table. You know, honestly, I think one of the best things you can do if you get rid of your TV is replace it with somewhere where the family can sit together and eat and just be like, turn the sofas towards each other and people can actually just talk to each other and not be like phones and, and TVs and whatever. You know, all of these sort of things about improving the situation in the house and replacing it with something good. If the family's, you know, arguing and bad words are being said, you know, arrange for a little halaqa in the house, a little remembrance, a little reading of Quran together, some family time. All these things, you're taking something away and replacing it with something else. I find this to be one of the major, major, major causes 
for improving the situation in the house. If you do come across anything suspicious, like a ta'weez or something like that, then they have to go any of these i'tiqad, which are like strange, you know, things that are given to give you blessings on your house and things like that, or black cloths or chili powder on the floor, whatever it is people do to keep evil spirits, nails in the corner of the room, all of them have to go. Because all of them are either shirk or bid'ah, and most of them are shirk. You get rid of them. And likewise, then you start treating the house. How do you treat the house? Wallahi, I've seen two opinions in this. From, our, from, from the people who we have, have a lot of knowledge on this topic and they respect. But the one that my nafs is happy with is not to do ruqya for the house, as in to do ruqya and blow on the walls or uh, read on water and spray the walls. Wallahi, I don't say it's haram, Allah knows best. I don't know what the ruling is and I've, I've struggled with that. But what my, you know, like they say, ma inno ilayhi. Nafsi, what my soul is happy with is the recitation of Surah Al-Baqarah in the room where you are having the most problem. Because Surah Al-Baqarah protects your house from the shayateen, it brings the angels that listen to the Quran, it makes your home a place of dhikr and barakah, and Surah Al-Baqarah is very powerful against the shaytan. The Prophet ﷺ said, أَخْذُهَا barakah wa Taking it is, a, is barakah, leaving it is loss, and the magicians cannot do anything against it. No, read Surah Al-Baqarah and other parts of the Quran, but particularly Surah Al-Baqarah, I would say no more than three days, like no more than basically, no less than twice a week. No more than three days go by without you reading Surah Al-Baqarah, again and again and again in the house. So for example, you could do a third, a third, and a third, or you could do it in one go. Um, I do recommend that you try to find where the cause of the problem is. Uh, just out of experience, there's no sunnah for it, but just out of experience, I've found that if you do it in the room where the, the greatest problem is being caused, it seems to have a better effect. You can combine it with rukia for a person, no reason why not why you can't have your family members sat in front of you, a little bit of ruqya for them, and you're reading Surah Al-Baqarah with the intention of protecting the house, and then the dua for going in the house, um, or the dua for going in the house being Bismillah, and Assalamu Alaikum, there is no, this dua Bismillahi wa Lajna is not authentic. Uh, then the dua for going out of the house, uh, and you know the dua for going into the bathroom and out of the bathroom, these are key because these are the vulnerable areas in your house. Where's the vulnerable area in your house? The door, front door, the bathroom doors. These are your vulnerable areas in your house. Things like closing the windows and doors at night. I have a full article on the virtues of closing the windows and doors at night. Um, and saying Bismillah when you do so because the Prophet said, for indeed the shaitan does not open a door or a window or something which is locked by saying Bismillah. Something when you said Bismillah and you closed it, the shaitan does not open it. So these are sort of key things. Your front door, so who comes in and who comes out. One of the things is you don't let people who are, you know, ideally, who are really, you know, sort of evil and, and you know, bad people sort of in. But even if, you know, you come in, you're talking about Bismillah when people come in, Assalamu Alaikum, you know, when they go out making dua, when they go into the bathroom, when they get out of the bathroom, and closing the windows and doors at night, and uh, rem mentioning the name of Allah Azza wa Jal as you do that, not, especially not leaving them open at Maghrib, and between Maghrib and Isha. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّ لِلشَّيْطَانِ إِنْتِشَارًا وَخَطْفًا 
that the shaitan spreads out and snatches people at that time. That's why you get the worst rookie reactions always come at Maghrib. Because the shaitan spreads out at that time and snatches and takes over people at that time. So this is a key time to again keep the windows and doors closed, keep children in at Maghrib as best you can. You know, you don't have to be like crazy about it that Maghrib comes and it's like, you know, just a curfew. You have to like barricade yourself inside your house. But just be sensible about it that when you don't leave your children playing outside, going somewhere unnecessarily, you know, outside at Maghrib time. Uh, and instead of that, you know, you keep them in the house at that time or in the car, wherever. Uh, and you mention the name of Allah Bismillah frequently. When you eat, you say Bismillah so that you don't let the shaitan eat with you. You know, when you go to sleep, you do your adhkar. This is a house where you don't think the shaitan is going to stay in it very long. Because it's going to be, imagine how horrible that is for the shaitan. The person wakes up in the morning, dhikr, fajr, praying the sunnah in the house, reading Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah, all the haram is taken out of it. It's a good environment, seeking knowledge, family are happy together. Then they do more adhkar at asr time, then they do more Quran. Then they pray some sunnah prayers there, maybe after Maghrib, after Isha. They pray tahajjud there. They, and you just got a house that the shaitan is just going to hate. You know, like every time they go in the bathroom, they say the dua. Every time they come out, they say, they say ghufranak. Every time they, you know, they come in the door, they say bismillah, and they give the salam. Every time they go out, they say the dua for leaving. Every time, you know, Maghrib comes, they close the windows and the doors and they say bismillah over them when they close them. You know what, you don't imagine the shaitan is going to remain in that situation for a very long time, especially if there's no magic keeping them there. And the last point I would mention about the home is sometimes you do have, the reason is there has been some magic done there, and the magic still remains in that place. Again, I'm kind of a balanced person. I don't think you should rip your floorboards up and you know, start like, you know, taking the wallpaper down and looking for things, but it doesn't hurt to have a once over the house. I tend to have a once over my house looking for pictures that have crept in and anything that might be untoward. So you might see, oh, subhanAllah, there's a, you know, I'll tell you a story, real, real thing happened to me. I, I came back home when I was in the UK and I opened the door and uh, said, Bismillah, Assalamu Alaikum, in I went. And straight away in unison, all my kids started screaming. Like, I'm doing about one, two, three or two, I don't remember there were two of them at that time, or three. Anyways, they all started screaming in unison, not like one woke them up and the other, they were all in different rooms. And like together, they started crying, screaming their heads off, like they've had a really bad nightmare. So I went upstairs, read a little bit on them, blew over them, put them back down to bed, etc. And then I put my hand in my pocket and I realized why. I realized someone had given me a ta'weez to destroy and get rid of, and I had meant to leave it in the car and then get rid of it in the morning, because it was very, very late at night, it was like midnight or, or one in the morning, and I had forgotten, and I'd left it in my pocket, and I walked in the house, and the second I walked in the house, the house just went crazy. Got rid of the tower, and I went outside in the garden right then, I didn't even leave it, I just went straight outside to the back of the garden, got rid of the ta'weez, I've got an article on how to do that on my website, how to destroy a ta'weez, got rid of it, job done. And came back in, house is all silent, everyone is calm, no more problem that night. So sometimes you do find something in the house that's crept in that shouldn't be there. I don't think you should rip your house apart, but I think that it's sensible to just look at the stuff in your house for haram things maybe, any sort of strange objects, hair, nails, weird things previous tenants might have left 
that might be related to magic, because sometimes those can bring the jinn in, and sometimes maybe someone was practicing magic in that house, and that was why the jinn have chosen to reside there, and you really have to push them out, you have to find where they're located, and you have to really target them with ruqya, with the recitation of Surah Al-Baqarah, with recitation of the people in the house, with the adhkar, with making the house a place of, of being beloved to Allah and all the other things that we have said. So I think that is a major, uh, a major thing. Uh, there was one point I wanted to come back to. I'm still on these points. I'm trying my best to get through as many as possible. Uh, and that is character flaws and the shaitan. I talked about arguments in the house, okay? About people arguing with one another in the house. One thing I want you to understand is it is very, very, very rare. Very rare indeed. In fact, almost never that the shaitan starts with a blank page when it comes to magic or jinn possession or causing evil in the house. It's very rare the shaitan starts with a blank page. The shaitan will work with what is already there. So if you have a tendency for your eye to wander and maybe look at things it shouldn't, you'll find that when you're afflicted by magic, that is much, much worse. And you may be, you know, like falling into some serious sins in that regard. If you're a person who is tempted by money and maybe not so careful about halal haram money, this will get much, much worse when you're afflicted by magic, even if the magic has nothing to do with the money. Because the shaitan works with what is already there. If you're naturally an angry person, then the shaitan is going to make your anger many, many times worse. Now, that actually leads us to a solution. You might think like I've just described a problem, but I've also described a solution, which is aside from Rukia, if you work on that flaw in your character, the shaitan will no longer have any material to work with. And the shaitan will no longer be able to overcome you. So if you're having a lot of arguments because of magic or jinn problems, working on your temperament and working on lowering your general anger and working on hilm, being sort of gentle and soft and patient and considerate and you know, having rifq and lean and being gentle and kind, the, this is fundamental to getting rid of the problem. Because the shaitan is only working with what is already there in most cases. The shaitan is working with what is already present within the person. And if you understand this, this has been something that I felt gave my ruqya such a boost that, it, you know, there's certain th sort of things in my, I don't call it a career, but my life doing ruqya that I have seen have just gone, whoa, that's like just made everything so much better. And this is one of them. Realizing that the shaitan does not start from a blank page. The shaitan starts with what is already there. So if you can correct what is already there, then the shaitan will no longer have the ability to manipulate you in that way. And we'll move on to something else, because we all have flaws, right? We never can remove all of our flaws. But, you know, if you are suffering from something, or you've got a patient suffering from something, and that patient says to you, my biggest problem is dot, dot, dot. Don't just say, okay, Rukia. See also, what is the flaw in their character that is allowing the shaitan the ability to manipulate them in that particular way? So if it's anger, we need to get rid of this anger problem from their character and not just blame it on the shaitan. A lot of people say, am I blameworthy for 
what happens to me when I'm afflicted. And a lot of people just give the answer and they say, you know, Rufi al-Qalam and Thalath, the pen is lifted from three and you're like the insane person, so you know, there's no sin on you. I don't say that to people. I say, if it is solely from the shaitan, then there is no sin on you. But the majority of people, it is not solely from the shaitan. It is a flaw in your character that the shaitan is taking advantage of. And so if you can correct that, that is what you have to do. You're not blameworthy for what the shaitan does to you, but you are blameworthy for that original flaw that is letting the shaitan get to you. It can be emotion, speaking without knowledge, backbiting, uh, anger, you know, suspicion, whatever it is, this flaw that's there, and the shaitan just makes it a hundred times worse. Say, I'm really suspicious of my wife, you know, she's, I don't know what she's doing, and I think something's going on. And we know it's sihr, but often that person would have had that kind of suspicion on a lesser scale before they were afflicted by magic, and then what's happened is the magic has just made it much, much, much worse.